नमस्ते एवरीवन लेटस इन्वोक द डिवाइन मदर वेलकम एवरीवन टू वेचारिकी वेचारिकी इज एन इनिशिएटिव फॉर थॉट्स डायलॉग्स एंड डिस्कशन एज पार्ट ऑफ द वन बर्थ एनिवर्सरी सेलिब्रेशन ऑफ श्री अरविंद दिस इज कंडक्टेड बाय राष्ट्रम स्कूल ऑफ पब्लिक लीडरशिप रिसीव्ड यूनिवर्सिटी टुडे इज द फिफ्थ चैप्टर ऑफ वेचारिकी द टाइटल इज आर्यस वेदस and historical chronology to set the context let me say a few lines about this fifth webinar sri aurobindo commented in detail about the exclusive preoccupation with the naturalistic element of rigvedic hymns by the european scholars the european scholars actually created a gulf between early rigvedic as and later Upanishadic and other thoughts. Sri Aurobindo remarked that the hypothesis invented to fill this gap that these ideas were borrowed by barbarous Aryan invaders from the civilized Dravidians is a conjecture which is supported only by other conjectures. It is indeed coming to be doubted whether the whole story of an Aryan invasion through the Punjab. is not a myth of the philologist this he remarked around a century ago he revealed the secret of the vedas at the embodiment of spiritual and psychological knowledge which is concealed in a veil of concrete and material figures and symbols his seminal works laid out a new foundation for a wide range of studies like comparative religion philology historiography mythology archaeology etc today we shall having be a keynote address followed by presentation and the concluding remarks by the chair i welcome dr sampadananda misra professor at rashtram school of public leadership received university to give his opening remarks namaste sir namaskar to all of you so we are the fifth chapter of uh, vaicharika so the whole idea was to स्प्रेड श्री ओरबिंदूस मेसेज बेस्ड ऑन डिफरेंट कॉन्सेप्ट एंड कंटेम्पोरिंग ब्रिंगिंग समेम्पोररी थॉट्स इन टू इट एंड कंटेक्चुअलाइजिंग श्री ओरबिंदूस थॉट्स सो विद दैट एम वी स्टार्टेड वैचारे की द मंथली वेबिनार सीरीज एंड टूडेज टॉपिक दो समटाइम्स 
i say that it's very daring to speak on these kind of topics uh, nowadays and you know a simple uh, calendar uh, by iit kharagpur what scenario it has created and it's good that awareness is spreading uh, but when we are talking about recently someone uh, put a question that uh, you know sampadanand uh, ji i do not agree with the interpretation of the word arya that sri aurobindo has given so it's extremely difficult to uh, fathom into sri aurobindo's etymology a uh, simple reason is that it is not mere etymology in the traditional sense he combines both philology psychology his own spiritual realizations and goes very deep into every root sound so in order to understand the vedas upanishads the gita or any other text in sanskrit in the light of sri aurobindo it is necessary to understand what exactly is the principle of etymology that sri aurobindo has followed in the secret of the veda so it's uh, very engaging and at the same time uh, in in 2017 i had invited professor ashok akluskarji to speak on the chronology of uh, ancient india and uh, he his entire uh, lecture was based on uh, kedi setna's book ancient india new light a uh, 600 pages book where uh, of course and this book of kedi setnaji who is uh, uh, to me he is the bhishma pitamaha of the uh, indian history so much of uh, authentic uh, information that one gets from his book but is completely suppressed by the uh, contemporary uh, historians uh, simply because he, he he uses certain uh terminology terminologies like uh, coincidence etc so they say that in history there is no coincidence so it is it is necessary that you know uh, like the young minds read this book of kedi setnaji and the whole chronology the uh, the the decision of what should be accepted in shaka and samvat and 600 500 to 600 years of gap that we have between accepting the chandragupta or sindragupta the synchronization synchronism on that so uh, these are the uh, you know yes that's the beautiful uh, book and uh, i i look forward to a very engaging discussion on this and we have i welcome uh, professor mr daninoji uh, who will be delivering the keynote address and with an authority on the topic his book had made a very um, uh, lasting impact on me when i first read his book on uh, the invasion that never was and we all are familiar with it and then we have uh, professor jay senji another authoritative person on the topic who will be uh, presiding over the panel discussion and the young minds make amritanshu and manukya we look forward to a very fruitful discussion thank you and welcome once again thank you sir for your welcome remarks and uh, just uh, today rashtram school of public leadership received university wants to pay our tributes to dr r nagaswami ji who left his mortal remains yesterday he has been an authority in this topic that we are having that we are discussing today he spoke about uh, the cultural association between tamil and sanskrit so rashtram would like to pay 
its tribute to him may his uh, may he attend the sadgati and today for the first keynote address i would like to welcome professor misel danino a brief a brief introduction about professor misel danino professor misel danino is a lifelong student of indian civilization an author and an educationist and have been living in india since 1977 he has lectured and written on many aspects of indian civilization in cultural and educational institutions he has contributed research papers on indian proto history his recent books are the lost river on the trail of saraswati indian culture and india's future knowledge traditions and practices of india sri aurobindo and india's river in 1996 he has written a book the invasion that never was he has given many courses on indian heritage and knowledge system in several iits and universities he is also a member of various government and non governmental bodies currently he is visiting professor at iit gandhinagar i welcome professor misal yanino for the keynote address namaste sir namaste dr sampadananda ji and abhishek and uh, friends and scholars present students perhaps i am very grateful for for uh, this invitation to the vaicharithi session and um, i would like to first of all pay my tribute to dr nagaswami indeed i was extremely lucky to know him very well to visit him numerous times at his home in besant nagar in uh, chennai uh, he even returned the compliment and visited, visited us once at our home in coimbatore we had numerous exchanges i contributed in fact to one of his first strips published in his honor and um, and we had many discussions on this whole you know aryan dravidian supposed uh, divide which uh, i may not be able to to touch upon today uh, but um, he kept sending me his books and some of them are extremely thought provoking because in the last three four books including mirror of uh, tamil and sanskrit tamil the land of the vedas and this uh, last book which he sent me last year oh, oh i think it's not going to work with this okay, i have to put it in front of myself uh, dharma yoga where uh, book after book he basically examines all the classical structures of tamil culture and shows that they are all derived from similar sanskrit models so of course this was very controversial in tamil nadu Uh, as you know there is a great pride in tamil culture which is absolutely fine as far as i'm concerned uh, the problem is that uh, you know a certain number of generations of scholars have had an agenda to show that this tamil culture was completely disconnected from sanskrit culture originally and uh, and uh, though it had its own stamp and individuality and certain unique devices it didn't mean that it was disconnected at all so this has been a uh, uh, part of his efforts in the last uh, 10 15 years and i have followed them closely so my homage uh, to dr nagaswami also my homage to shri aurobindo because we are in the 150th anniversary year and i see that there are a lot of grand programs being planned uh, i would rather personally prefer much more humble efforts Uh, and which can be summed up in one sentence let us try to understand shri aurobindo that is for me the entire agenda of the 150th anniversary and that's exactly what i propose to try to do today as far as his work on the vedas 
is concerned, will not centrally touch upon the RN debate, but accessorily more towards the end of, of this uh, brief presentation. Uh, I would like to uh, also uh, apologize that I was uh, never able to publish the English edition so far of a major new study on the Aryan debate, which was published in France. It's a big book uh, in 2006, I believe, and it has gone through a lot of revisions since. And still, I'm not absolutely sure in what form I would like to publish it. Perhaps I will split it into two, three different studies because it has become very voluminous. Uh, and um, I hope in the next uh, year or two, we have to leave, live beyond time sometimes. Uh, I hope I will be able to do justice among many other pressing tasks and responsibilities. Now, let me first of all, initiate this with a brief retrospective of what have been the different schools of interpretation of the Rig Veda. What, and this I'm going to simplify greatly. Uh, great scholars like uh, Sampanandaji may please shut their ears because this will not be a very uh, rigorous uh, account. But it's important that we get a perspective of how people have been looking at the Rig Veda, starting with the first schools of Indian etymology, the, the Nirukta Nighamtu school, where probably 2000 years after the, the Rig Veda proper, let's not be worried about chronology today too much, but a long time after, we find the first great etymologist of India, Yaska, compiling a list of terms whose meaning has become obscure, terms from the Rig Veda, whose meaning has become obscure. And he says himself, you can please refer to, to Lakshman Sarup's old uh, translation, very, very good scholarly work, um, where he himself says that, you know, th these words have no longer a clear meaning to us today. And he himself is datable to perhaps six to eighth century BC. Dates are always very difficult to pin down. Anyway, what's very interesting is that he himself quotes some contemporary scholars of his time, 6th to 8th century BC, who deny any meaning to the Rig Veda. They say, and he quotes them, not approvingly, but he quotes them because, you know, the Indian tradition of dialogue and debate was to take all points of view on board. Don't, let's not forget that. And he's, he quotes one particular scholar. I'm just quoting from memory, please excuse. I didn't have time to marshal all the quotations, but they're there in some of my writings. Who says that this Veda has no meaning whatsoever. It's a futile exercise and a waste of time to try to find any meaning at all. So you can see how much intellectual distance, time distance also had already occurred by the time of Yaska, where the very meaning of the Rig Veda was therefore we find that, that a lot of later writings, and this is Shuramindo's point in the, in the Secret of the Veda, try to recover this, this meaning, but sometimes with great limitations. And in fact, Shuramindo considered that the whole Vedanta exercise, rooted no doubt in the Rig Veda, still misses some very central uh, aspects uh, and points uh, of, of the, 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 the Rig Vedic quest. And in some ways, even distort the, the meaning of the Rig Veda. And this is why Shramindu was, was uh, severely criticized by some orthodox 
uh, commentators of the Rigveda in his time, uh, because uh, you know some of the reviews, if you read the reviews of the Secret of the Veda, or rather, it was not yet published in, under this title. Rather, his articles in the Arya, uh, you know, the re contemporary reviews, some of them were very, very highly critical, saying that he had not had a traditional training, and uh, all his interpretation was running against this traditional interpretation, which I will come to in a minute, and and so on and so forth. And he said, yes. I'm maybe it's fine if I'm against the traditional interpretation because that traditional interpretation is actually a fairly recent one and has lost sight of the genuine, true, deepest meaning and significance of the Rig Veda. So what are what are those traditional schools? Basically, those represented on the one hand by the Mimansa tradition, of which I confess I am not very knowledgeable. So I'm not going to say much about it, except that it is very broadly based on a ritualistic interpretation and commentary and commentary commenta on, on the, the Rig Veda and, the, and all the Vedas. So this Mimansa school is also the one that started this theory that the Vedas are Apureshaya. They are not human in their origin. And therefore uh, they are also beyond time, they are eternal. And this has created a lot of confusion, especially in recent times, when uh, you know when uh, some scholars try to give a date to the Rig Veda. For example, the answer is that there is no date, uh, and and I think it is an unnecessary debate and and wrong wrongly put problem, which is a little bit like questioning Einstein's formula of uh, you know E equals M C square. Uh, and arguing that this truth of, of equivalence of matter and energy is eternal. It's from all time, uh, from the beginning of this universe. And therefore, how, do you, how can you give a date to this particular formula? So yes, it is true. The truth is eternal. But at some point in time, somebody comes along and formulates it. And this is what the Rishis did. Let's not forget that the Rishis themselves constantly refer to their own creations of hymns. And I am going to address you i'm going to sing this hymn in your praise i'm going to do... so there are they are absolutely clear that they are composing those hymns and and the whole context is is, is quite transparent so this was the mimansa school but there's a lot more that i'm not competent to 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 convey and i think a lot of very deep thought in mimansa but it does find a reflection in you know the famous commentary of uh, sayana Sayana and his group of scholars in the Vijayanagara uh, court who were mandated to produce an extensive commentary as well as kind of a translation into contemporary Sanskrit of the, uh, the, the, the Rig Veda in particular. A very massive exercise, but again, very deeply rooted in ritualistic interpretations of the text. Sri Aurobindo takes Sayana to task Sayanacharya, as he is known in, in the tradition, uh, very frequently in his own translations, because he shows that Sayana constantly changes the, the meaning of certain essential keywords in the Rig Veda, which uh, suddenly become totally unreliable guides in understanding the Rig Veda. And this is basically Shirmido's central disagreement with Sayana, that certain keywords, which which, and I will I will discuss very briefly a few, 
cannot be altered. They have a certain range of meaning, no doubt. They cannot be equated with one English word, no doubt. But this range of meaning is, is very precise and cannot be altered. If we are going to change that range of meaning after ascertaining it, then we are going to make a mess. So I'm putting things in a very crude way, I know, but this is to me the, the essential blame that Shiromino addresses to this uh, focus on the karmakanda, the, the karmakanda, the, the whole ritual aspect, which no doubt is there somewhere, especially in Yajur Veda, not so much in Rig Veda, but definitely it is part of the whole Vedic school uh, of thought and belief and practice, but it is not the, 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 the core of the message according to Rig Veda. Then we come to a third major step, which is the European school of interpretation in the 19th century. And that can be summed up with the word naturalistic. It's a naturalistic interpretation. In other words, the Vedic people who were suddenly pastoral and nomadic and primitive, all these words were used in the 19th century, were simply worshiping forces of nature, personalizing them, and therefore Indra is nothing but lightning, and Varuna is nothing but rain or storm, and so on and so forth. And Agni is just the natural fire. And therefore, you reduce the entire Vedic exercise to a very primitive sort of animism. And this is reflected in our you know, leftist school of historians uh, in India. Because if you read Romania Thapar, for example, she does write that the, the Vedic view of life was primitive animism. So therefore, the, our, our leftist historians will probably never bother to even read the hymns properly, uh, are perfect inheritors on this point of the colonial school of, of uh, Vedic interpretation, which in many senses, we, it was in fact more scrupulous because after all, a huge amount of Vedic scholarship was built in the 19th century. And we have to you know, uh, pay our debt of gratitude to people like Max Miller who dedicated their lives to um, publishing, sometimes translating with all errors that we may criticize today, but nevertheless, bringing all this vast corpus of literature to the attention of the scholarly world in Europe and, and a wider public also. Uh, this is, uh, in short, the, the naturalistic school, but it is also literalist. It is also refusing to look at the a deeper symbolism in the Rig Veda and takes everything at a literal level. And I'll come back to this in the last part of, of my talk in a few minutes, where we see how this literalist interpretation suddenly comes in support of the Aryan innovation theory as formulated in the 19th century by taking a lot of uh, words uh, at a very basic uh, uh, literal level and making a whole huge mess of, of the Rig Veda, forcing it, in other words, to uh, create a narrative of an invasion of primitive tribals, uh, autochtones, as they are called, by, and I'm coming back to this in a moment, uh, by uh, more highly civilized uh, Aryans, uh, conquering race coming from somewhere in Central Asia. It's interesting, by the way, that the same Aryans turn out to be primitive after the discovery of the Indus civilization, since the indigenous populations suddenly now become civilized in the in the Harappan civilization. Now the Aryans are the barbarians who come and smash it. 
and uh, and therefore uh, they are in so there have been many mutations of you know just as we speak of the mutations of the covid uh, virus the the theory itself went through a number of mutations which are very amusing to trace but that's not my point today so finally in the 20th century there are many more schools of vedic interpretation especially in the west uh, i should mention the structural structuralist school and uh, dumezil the french a uh, structuralist, linguist, a prodigious scholar, was the one who tried to fit the whole structuralist school of anthropology uh, into the Rig Veda. And uh, uh, suddenly this was transport, tra transposed to an entire Indo-European uh, mythology uh, where uh, uh, all the, the, the great stories of the Rig Veda were uh, mapped with the whole Indo-European uh, theory. I would not say that all of it is to be rejected. In fact, there are certain very important clues which can help us there, but the entire context is of course not something that we can accept today. And even Dumézil's tripartite theory has been very severely criticized by a number of Western scholars as well, uh, because uh, he tried to make it universal to the Indo-European uh, world and a kind of, um, criterion to identify Indo-European uh, proto-cultures. And it was very easily proved that this didn't work because many non-European cultures like the ancient Japanese culture, for example, were following the same scheme of things as he, the one he was applying to the Indo-European model. So anyhow, there've been more, but I would also like to pay justice to some, and I'm going to read just two very brief extracts to a number of, um, European scholars, but I'll just take two for in the interest of time, uh, who again dedicated their lives to, you know, uh, unraveling Vedic texts and later texts. And I think they deserve our respect because for the sheer amount of energy uh, that, that they, they devoted to, to all of this. And of course, we have many Indian scholars as well, but uh, the, the, the Western ones deserve a moment of recognition and gratitude, even if their models are not always or often acceptable to us. So I would like to quote Louis Renou, the, the celebrated French Indologist, prodigious, prodigious scholarship, and uh, published, I think, 16 or 17 volumes on Paninian and Vedic studies, uh, full of a lot of very useful hints. They are uh, available on in French. And he finds that the Rig Veda, and I quote, develops a web of symbols in which language has been bent to subtle processes of a mythical ritual imagination. Almost all Indian works have an esoteric side, the Rig Veda more than any other. So you see here an acceptance of the fact that there is much more than, than what we European scholars can make out in the Rig Veda and we should not you know, dismiss it as a, at a superficial level, he accepts all this esoteric side and the web of symbols. Uh, the Dutch scholar Jan Gonda, who also published an amazing number of books on, on uh, specific studies on, on the Rig Veda and later literature, wrote the following. He said, a rishi seeks or enters into contact with divinity or transcendent reality. He associates with gods. He may address them and has an insight into the nature of their greatness. 
he invites them to do something on behalf of those who have his poem recited. He is inspired and even regarded as born of the gods with whom, with, with whom is the origin of the ancient rishis, his predecessors. This inspiration enables them to compose hymns, which may be expected to influence the deities presiding over the powers, phenomena, and provinces on, of the cosmos on which man himself feels dependent and to contribute to the preservation of their specific might. For all practical purposes, this means maintaining universal order, what Rigveda will call Ritam, and keeping the powers of nature operative. Strengthened by the hymns of the poets, the gods, caressed by them like husbands by the amorous wives, this is a reference to a particular hymn, will continue furthering their inspirations. So you see that, uh, though there would be a lot more that I could quote, uh, some scholars were not content with remaining at the superficial level of 19th century scholarship. And they were trying within their own limitations uh, to go deeper. Now it's time to turn to Sri window. And of course, I'm not going to do justice to his whole scheme of interpretation. I just want to extract one or two points, um, which uh, all of you can refer to uh, at a much deeper level in the secret of the Vedas. And I think this text must be read again and again because there are so many seeds in it. You may remember, by the way, that when in his lifetimes, uh, uh, disciples wanted to publish his articles as a book, Sri Aurobindo refused. And he said that he was just then at the beginning of his exploration of the, of the Rig Veda, and he wanted to go back to it and revise it, which unfortunately he never had time to do. What he did have time to do was to publish hymns to the mystic fire, or a very substantial collection of all the hymns uh, in the Rig Veda to Agni uh, in a revised translation and with some annotations. So this he did have time, but unfortunately we do not have his final word, uh, but I think we can still take much of the secret of the Veda to give us very strong leads. Now there is one theme which is absolutely central to the Rig Veda and runs through it, through all the books, and perhaps through 30 or 40 hymns, I forget the number, I have made notes and one day um, the Rishi is willing, I will produce a paper on this theme alone. This theme is the campaign against the Dasyus, sometimes the Panis, sometimes the Dasas, and the splitting of the mountain or the hill in whose caves they are hiding and concealing sometimes cows, sometimes horses, yes, sometimes rivers, and then with the, uh, either the gods, Indra, Surya, Agni, there are many, many mutations of this, many variations. Sometimes the gods with the rishis, sometimes the rishis alone, lead this campaign, go reach this mountain and split the mountain open, this rock, open and release either the, uh, the cows, the imprisoned cows, 
or the sometimes horses, sometimes the rivers, uh, they sometimes release the seven suns, the suns hidden also at the foot of the mountain. So as you can see, there are many variants and all of these have been, uh, well, three quarters of these hymns have been just plainly ignored because uh, uh, naturalistic interpreters were not able to, to cope with you know, hidden suns or hidden rivers, except by inventing perhaps dams uh, that uh, indigenous people would have built on the rivers, which makes absolutely no sense in the context of, context of the hymns, or uh, transforming the whole, the whole hymn into a battle over cattle. So you have the indigenous people having cattle and the incoming Aryans uh, go and kill them and seize their cattle. But number one, nobody in India, no tribal community that I know of has ever kept cattle in mountainous caves. You don't do that. You keep them in pens, you keep them in forests, you keep them wherever you can, but not in caves in mountains. So, and what are these caves which contain sometimes cows, sometimes horses, sometimes treasure, sometimes the sun, sometimes the rivers and so on. So therefore, here we have a very clear theme which takes us to a completely different dimension. And it is what Shirmino explains very clearly. It is the release of our hidden powers, hidden riches, hidden levels of consciousness. These are the rivers. Uh, the cows, of course, represent the light. And at least this equivalence of the word go with, with light and cow is accepted in dictionaries. Whereas the equivalence that Shirobindo proposes, and I've quoted it often in my papers, I'll come back to one paper shortly, between Ashwa, the horse, and the concept of speed, energy, power, in, uh, the dynamic power, and so on, that is not accepted, though it is absolutely transparent in the hymns. And uh, in, in my paper, Demilitarizing the Rig Veda, which is on my Academia page, and I've shared it with Sampatanandaji, I've gone at length putting numerous extracts to show that uh, this, uh, this, uh, this Ashwa is, is again uh, a dynamic power. It is, it is just a symbol for uh, conquering power of some sort. And this also has been uh, captured by these Dasus, Dasas, or Panis. Now, who are these people? And, and this is where, again, the literalist school wanted them to be natives, wanted them to be black-skinned, though it is never said explicitly in the text. They are wrapped in darkness, which is very different. Um, and uh, in fact, they are quite simply, according to Sri Aurobindo and according to the entire context of the hymns, they are quite simply darker forces what you will call later on in Indian mythology, demons. Uh, asuras, I would not use the term because Asura in the Rig Veda is a term for a mighty God. It's not yet a, demon, a demonized entity that will come much later. But they are, they are demonic entities in the sense that they are the darker powers that conceal from us all these lights, all these consciousness, uh, all this wealth that we have in us. Uh, so this is the clear symbolism. And, and this alone uh, shows us how far 
all these schools, including Sina School, I have to say, though I created a bit of a storm in one e-group a few years ago when I spoke of uh, uh, Sina's confusion about Vedic symbolism uh, and, and immediately traditional-minded uh, uh, scholars protested. But we have to be very objective about, about uh, you know, it doesn't diminish Sina's great work in any manner. But if he led us as, as far away from the, the genuine symbolism, uh, then we have to critically examine it. Critical thinking is, is a very much a central part of India's intellectual tradition. I see no reason to depart from it. And it doesn't mean that you disrespect the scholar that you, you critique. So therefore, th this is uh, just one aspect I, I will take for today. Um, there are many others, the, the symbolism of the dawn, uh, the symbolism of, of the entire Vedic quest. And here it's very important to mention at least the quest for the truth. Uh, you know, this, uh, this tat ekam, tat satyam. And it's very interesting that there is perhaps, uh, Sampadandaji may correct me later, there is perhaps no name for God, the supreme God. In, in the Rig Veda, in the way he will be named later, like Purushottaman, like Parashurama, and so on. Uh, uh, all this, uh, no, not Parashurama, excuse me, uh, but uh, there are so many names for uh, the Ishwara and so on. These names will come from the Upanishads onward, but Rig Veda prefers the terminology of Ekam Sat, this one existence, Tat Ekam. That's Satyam and so on. There is also a quest for the cosmic order, this uh, rhythm, uh, which is constantly in conflict with chaos, nirta, the, the opposite of it. And uh, this tension between the two is, is what, uh, you know, an Arya, that is to say, a cultured uh, person who sides with the gods, who sides with the rishis. Uh, and Arya should always strive to restore. So this is the theme of fighting for dharma. So fighting for dharma does not occur in the Rig Veda, though the word dharma does occur a few times, but fighting to restore and defend this cosmic order or rhythm. There are many such more themes which I will not have time to go into. There are uh, wonderful images like uh, a wave of honey rising from the ocean. I'm using directly Shriyamindu's translations here. Uh, the ocean of the heart, rivers of ghee uh, rising, uh, a well of honey covered by the rock, uh, and so on and so forth. So um, the, the, the whole symbolism is, is very transparent and, and Shriyamindu has dedicated many chapters to it. Uh, and uh, it gives us uh, uh, even that is itself enough to uh, show us that we are missing otherwise a lot of the uh, important uh, symbolism and the, the, the truths that the Rig Veda holds in an allegorical language. Uh, whereas the Upanishads will use a more intellectual language, dialogic language also, Rig Veda is not following this at all. Rig Veda is, is, is songs it is hymns, it is prayers, um, it is poetry, and uh, uh, it wants to invoke the truth of this cosmos uh, in, in a poetical language. 
through images, powerful images, powerful symbols, and it is our duty to try to make sense of them. So concluding on what all this means to us from the point of view of the Aryan myth. So of course, Shira Abindo already pointed to a, a lot of clues. First of all, the fact that, that many scholars, even a few before him, like Swami Vivekananda pointed to of a foreign homeland uh, outside India in the Rig Vedali uh, manner as, as uh, invaders. This is something that most scholars, uh, even those who promote the, the Aryan invasion or migration theory are ready to accept. A few like Michael Witzel tried strongly to invent evidence and that prompted me to, to publish a paper called Fabricating evidence uh, for the uh, Aryan, um, Aryan invasion migration theory. Uh, and uh, I, I found quite a few, quite a, little, uh, a lot more. For example, he invents the, uh, the story that the Aryans record in the Rig Veda, uh, that they record cross, the crossing of many rivers. And therefore you can see now their migration into India. There is no such thing. Nowhere in the Rig Veda, I, I checked thoroughly, is there an indication of crossing many rivers. What Michael Witzel did was to juxtapose many hymns that speak of the crossing of the river. And the crossing of the river is another powerful myth that we know very well in the entire later Indian symbolism, including all the way to Jainism and the Tirthankas, who are those who help us to cross to the other side. And this crossing to the other side is a constant theme running through all classical India, and it doesn't need any explanation. Rig Veda itself, at some point there is a hymn thanking the gods for taking us to the, this other shore, taking us to this other shore of the ocean. So these are very powerful images. And if we just turn inside, we can begin to understand them. So therefore, um, uh, th there is uh, nothing in the Rig Veda that uh, justifies, number one, the concept of outsiders, the concept of migrants, uh, also perhaps the concept of primitive nomadic people, because uh, in fact, there's a lot of clues about Rig Vedic people, though it's not a text that will try to depict any society. It's not a social text. It's not a historical text, though we may take a few hints here and there. But there are enough hymns, for example, in the whole concept of Samudra, the ocean, which perhaps can be simply a large body of water, but in some cases is indisputably the, the, the ocean. This is something where, which many have, uh, from Nicolas Casanas to, to uh, a lot of other scholars have written upon. I have also written upon this, but perhaps it's not yet published. Um, the, in, undeniably, in many hymns, it is the ocean. And there are ships uh, going on it, and there is, uh, you know, the the famous story of the 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 storm of three days, and the Ashwins coming to rescue uh, a, a ship caught in the storm, and so on. So uh, this prompted even H. H. Wilson, in the 1840s, who produced the first translation into English of the Rig Veda, to argue that the Rig Vedic people were highly civilized. And there were several others like Goldstucker himself who agreed with this view and disagreed completely with the fact that they were primitive people. So you see, even in, in Europe, 
there were there were quite a, a lot of nuances and we have to take them into account so so therefore uh, uh, this is uh, one thing which the, the Vela tells us very clearly uh, then this whole story of the horse and the chariot and i'll be very brief because i will refer you to my paper demilitarizing the rigveda where i have marshaled a lot of uh, textual and archaeological evidence uh, as far as the rigvedic evidence is concerned it's extremely simple we are told again and again by all those scholars who promote the Aryan uh, invasion or migration theory and most of them keep simply recycling what someone else has, has said they will not even trouble themselves going back to the the original text we told again and again that the Rig Veda is full of horses and uh, horse-drawn chariots and even sometimes horse riding people there's nothing about horse riding by the way that's absolutely clear but when i counted all the occurrence and yes and the the, the wheels are have spokes they are spoked wheels and therefore the aryans brought into india the technology of the spoked wheel and the horse drawn chariot which did not exist earlier so first of all i produced some evidence from the harappan civilization to dispute this Though it's not very massive, uh, uh, admittedly, nevertheless, uh, the, the point is that in the Rig Veda, when you look at a combination in a single hymn of a horse-drawn chariot with spoked wheel, you will find it in a single place in the entire Rig Veda. In all the other passages, they are disconnected elements and they have obvious symbolic meanings. The chariot is again the, the future symbol that you find in the Bhagavad Gita of, of our, our human uh, being, our human instrument drawn uh, by, by horses, by powers which have to be reined in for a meaningful life, for an accomplished life. Uh, then uh, the, the spoked wheel is actually a completely different symbolism. It has to do with Surya, it has to do with Agni, it has nothing to do with any horse-drawn chariot. So I could go on and on, but my conclusion is that the, to me the greatest harm that the Aryan theory or even in its recent avatars migration theory has done uh, apart from creating sharp divides in the Indian population and, you know, uh, definitely promoting divisive ideologies. Let's keep in mind that these divisions did not exist in the earlier Indian traditions. No, no medieval or classical Tamil scholar, to my knowledge, ever complained about invading Aryans, uh, imposing their culture, uh, upon them. They were actually, the, 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 the concept of cultural unity was very strong, though some of them, yes, for example, did proudly asserted sometimes the superiority of Tamil over Sanskrit, and that is absolutely fair, uh, or, or everyone will, will do that with uh, his or her own language, and it doesn't matter in the least. But culturally, the, the, the inherent unity of Indian culture was never challenged at that level. And, and therefore, the greatest harm to me that this theory has done, apart from dividing and creating these divisive ideologies, is a deep injustice to the Rig Veda. Because, because we have been hypnotized 
by this narrative, which has gone through many variations perhaps, but essentially remains the same. We have forgotten the deeper meaning. When you look at the panel behind me, when you see Goddess Durga in this magnificent panel from Mahabalipuram, Mamarapuram, conquering Mahishasura, uh, who, who maybe I should move away a little bit. Uh, you can see now Mahishasura, the, 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 the buffalo here. Uh, nobody is arguing, you know, that these, these, these are North Indians smashing buffalo worshipping uh, South Indian tribes. It's accepted as part of a cosmic and almost universal mythology. You have similar myths in, in all other cultures. It, it may not be a buffalo everywhere. Sometimes it is. It may be something else, than some other shape that demons take. But this fight of you know, divine powers against demons is a universal theme. So when this happens in the Rig Veda, uh, through the whole image of the, the gods and the rishis and the aryas fighting the dasyus, the panis, the dasas, suddenly this becomes a racial uh, uh, interpretation in the 19th century. And even if the racial component is kind of pushed away a little bit in the 20th century, the, the message remains the same. It's to be taken at a literal level, which, which no other contemporary text is condemned to. If you look at a similar text uh, like Gilgamesh in Mesopotamia, which is to me of a comparable period, the, the, the third or fourth millennium BCE, and Gilgamesh is also a quest for immortality. And there is a whole deep symbolism of waters in Gilgamesh, which is very comparable to uh, uh, Rigvedic symbolism. And Gilgamesh, nobody tries to put a literalist interpretation of it. All the symbols are looked at as symbols. But in the Rig Veda has been subjected to this uh, very pedestrian and unjust, unfair uh, readings, uh, which, uh, which therefore means that this is a loss of inheritance, all of us uh, in India. And this to me is, is the great harm. And we must um, perhaps some of us can continue to confront the theory head on through all kinds of deep studies. And I would like to point out that it's not an easy task because it has to be done at the linguistic level, at the archaeology level, at the level of cultural studies, at the anthropology level, at the genetics level, and so on. There are so many uh, aspects of this uh, which require deep research. But, but, um, the, 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 apart from this, I think we need to also do a lot of positive research and recover for ourselves the meaning of these ancient hymns, uh, which are not only full of uh, beauty, uh, full of evocative power, but deep messages for uh, you know, our humanity, even in its uh, present juncture, I think perhaps more than ever. So this is as briefly as I could make this kind of panoramic view of what Sri Aurobindo tried to do. And, uh, and incidentally, because it was not central to his work, incidentally dealing with some of these uh, Aryan byproducts, I should say, of the Aryan theory. Thank you very much. Namaste. Yeah, thank you, Professor Danilo, for this soothing talk in this morning.
um, I, you touched upon the several interpretations like the naturalistic interpretation and the ritualistic interpretation, but it's the drishti of a seer or a rishi that actually touches upon the various levels of consciousness that are encoded in the myths of Rig Veda and which Sri Aurobindo did through his seminal works. And I don't think after this talk there is anything to ask, but yeah, if there are any questions or comments we would like to take pertaining to the topic that Professor has touched upon. Uh, okay, uh, since there are no questions from the uh, group, I would like to ask uh, Professor Danilo, you mentioned that the work of Sri Aurobindo, the secret of the Vedas, uh, he didn't allow his devotees to publish during his uh, uh, lifetime because it was kind of unfinished or let's say. So if you want to just elaborate on that aspect so that there is a scope for further exploration and indeed it can be done by illuminated minds, but if you would like to throw light upon that. It's it was a request to publish his Arya articles in a book form, and this he, re, he refused. So this the book, the secret of the Vedas as we know it, was not published in his lifetime. It was published first in the nineteen fifties. However, what has been done in more recent years by the Sri Aurobindo Ashram and the archives is to publish additional unfinished articles. Uh, which Shiromindo, uh, so I think there is a volume called Vedic something. I have it right in Vedic and Philological Studies. Yes, thank you, Sampanamaji, which uh, supplements the secret of the Veda. There are many uh, unfinished uh, articles which he put aside at some point, uh, either because they were unfinished or because he revised them and published them in Arya. And these actually help us a lot to follow his line of exploration. And then there is an entire Vedic glossary, which has also been published by one disciple, maybe Sampadanji, you'll remember the name. A.B. Purani. Yes. A.B. Purani, no, but more recently, more recently. Um, the, is, uh, the, the first one was published by A.B. Purani. I remember, yes. Parts. Yes. Uh, so one part was purely etymological and the other was just the interpretations by Sri Aurobindo, the meanings of the words with yes. uh, reference. So these are also important instruments. I think somebody else more recently, uh, 10 years ago perhaps, came out with another kind of uh, uh, detail. There is one by Sam Sundar Khaitanji from Junjun. Yes. Perhaps. So he, he brought out a small booklet. Yeah. So, so we have all these instruments together and we have the uh, hymns to the mystic fire, uh, which was published, of course, in his lifetime, uh, which were polished translations. And you see, we also see that uh, he was, sometimes some of the hymns, he translated three times, four times, five times. In fact, the first hymn of the Rig Veda, I think there are about 12 translations. And every time you can see that the meaning is somewhat different. Uh, the, the emphasis is different. And therefore, because, because actually translating the Rig Veda into English is by definition impossible. You can paraphrase, you can explain, you can, uh, but each hymn 
uh, would, would require pages of explanations, which is what actually his initial intention was. But of course, he never had the time to bring this to a conclusion. So I still feel that the secret of the, and he also admitted that there were a few small technical errors in the translations. You see, Shermino was never formally trained in Vedic Sanskrit. He picked it up by himself, uh, which, is, which, which is extremely creditable. Uh, and he said that there were a few uh, errors here and there, which he also wanted to correct. But I think they are very minimal and, and uh, they do not matter for, for our you know, study of, of his message. So this is uh, the story in brief. Uh, you know, like many uh, people who object to uh, that he's uh, not following the tradition. So later, uh, when we find uh, um, traditional scholars like Subramanya Bharati, A.B. Purani, Kapalishas, uh, Kapalishas, yeah. Kapalishas. So, after 1950, Kapali just stopped writing commentary on Siddhanjana. So when he was asked, so his simple answer was, who is there to sanction my commentary? So every uh, bit of Siddhanjana Bhashya that uh, is available was seen by Sri Aurobindo, letter by letter. And with his approval, uh, Kapali Shastriji published it. And he comes from a very uh, yes. uh, tough traditional background. So yes, that is true. There, there, there was a, a kind of a change of heart. And I've also found and met some great Vedic scholars in Kerala. Uh, there was one, I think his name was Krishnan Nambudri, perhaps, uh, who published a little book on the meaning of the, of the Vedas. And he refers to Sri Aurobindo often. Uh, I find that uh, many of the recent Vedic scholars in Kerala acknowledged uh, you know, that, that uh, his message was very important. So, so this is, I believe, something that will keep growing eventually. Thank you. Thank you a lot, Professor Danilo, for your wonderful talk and actually filling us with gratitude with what our civilization and culture holds for us. We shall now move to the second part of this webinar, the presentation and panel discussion part. Uh, if Professor Danilo, your time permits, we would request you to stay with us. Just to set the context for this panel discussion, after uh, we heard about the secret of the Vedas and or the Vedic hymns from Professor Danino, uh, we would now move head on to the chronology, Aryan invasion, and out of Indian theory. Uh, this panel discussion will be chaired by Dr. Joyson. A brief introduction about Dr. Joyson. Dr. Joyson is a professor of the Department of Architecture and Regional Planning, Indian Institute of Technology, Khadakpur and he is also the former head. He is currently associated with two mega projects sponsored by MHRD Government of India, the Sandhi Science and Heritage Mega Initiative, and also PEI2 in the Future of Cities. He has authored seven books on Indian heritage, iconographic documentation, and a textbook on sustainable planning. Recently, as the chairperson of the Center of Excellence for Indian Knowledge Systems, he was instrumental in bringing out the 2022 calendar titled Recovery of the Foundations of Indian Knowledge System. And I am sure we all must have seen or heard about this calendar. The calendar talks about the secret of the Vedas, reinterpretation of India's Indus Valley civilization, and refutes Aryan invasion theory. 
as a panelist and uh, the panelist of this panel discussions are Sri Mek Kalyana Sundaram ji, Ms. Manogna Sastri and Amritangsu Pandey ji. Uh, I shall read out the brief introduction about the three of them. Mek Kalyana Sundaram is an Indian citizen with close to nine years of lived experience in China and alumnus of ISB and is currently director of special projects at Indica. His professional experience includes stints as a market leader at a global Fortune 40 firm, as head of business development at a leading Indian talent development multinational, and he has served a term of the board of a Shanghai-based not-for-profit. His academic research interest and 20-plus papers span some aspects of ancient Indian chronology, Indian knowledge system, landscape in Indian text, ideas of India, and philosophy. For his creative contribution to the first edition of the International Day of Yoga, he was invited by the per Permanent Mission of India in the UN to attend the inaugural event. Other professional pursuits have included building differentiated digital platforms for index text targeted at specific learning and research needs and music. His research-based compositional Sanskrit album Bharata and, uh, and her Kashmira was recently accepted for listing in the Government of India Ministry of Culture's Music at Sangam and featured in ISB's list fest ODC. Meg was invited by the National Museum Institute to present his research on Kashmir as a part of a national seminar to generate content for a new museum on Jammu and Kashmir that is coming up at Lal Kila complex. About Manogna Sastriji, Manogna Sastri is an alumnus of Indian Institute of Astrophysics with a strong background in theoretical physics and mathematics. Her research interest encompasses consciousness studies and civilizational studies centered around India, including focused aspects of chronology and desacralization. She currently works with Infinity Foundation India as team leader research. And Amritangsu Pandey is a research researcher in ancient Indian history. His fields of interest are macro-historical narratives, Puranika data, Rigveda, and P and proto and PIE and chronological frameworks. He can be found on Twitter at Amritangsu underscore SOA. I welcome all of the panelists and the uh, and Professor Joyce to this panel discussion. And to speak about and first Manogna ji and Mek ji will be presenting their uh, original findings on the ABC of Indian chronology. I welcome them all to present their findings. Namaste. Om Saraswati Namastubhyam Varade Kamarupini Vidyarambham Karishyami Siddhir Bhavatume Sada Shruti Smriti Purananam Alayam Karunalayam Namami Bhagavat Padam Shankaram Loka Shankaram Purananyaya Mimamsa Dharma Shastranga Mishrita Vedahasthanani Vedyanam Dharmasya Chachaturdasha Ayurvedo Dhanugvedo Gandharvashaiva Tetrayaha Arthashastram Chaturthantu Vidyahashtadashaiva Taha Om Shanti 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 as we have Nagaswamiji in our minds when we are presenting this, uh, it is, we must say that it's a very difficult act to follow Michelle on such a topic. And we are going to be taking up that difficult task. 
I will be reading from a script which is prepared. And therefore, please bear with the fact that since I'm changing slides as well as handling the script, my eyes will be focusing more on the script. So please do bear with me on that. With that out of the way, we thank the team at Rashtrum for inviting us to HRIKI webinar number five, titled Arya's Vedas in Historical Chronology in the year 2022. The year when Sri Aurobindo turned one, turns 150 and India turns 75 post-1947. In the next 30 or so minutes, we will present in brief the ABC of Indian chronology, which is a framework we introduced in a paper written in 2016. On top of the slide is a structure of our talk, which is organized in three parts. In the first part, we'll share an overview in brief of our work in chronology in the last five years and cover two whys. Why our focus on chronology and why the ABC of Indian chronology. In part two, we will present some aspects of the ABC of Indian chronology in brief. After which we will take questions, if any, specific to our work. Before we proceed further, two quick points. Neither of us is affiliated to any political party. We do not identify wholly with claustrophobic static labels such as right wing or left wing or any wing and see ourselves broadly as constitutional patriots. Uh, our research is guided by the search for the truth about some aspects of our culture. And two, if any part of the presentation is being posted on social media by anyone else, we request that the same be done along with a link to our presentation, which we may upload into academia.edu profile Bharatiya chronology in the coming days. Now, our work in chronology began with the paper Purva Paksha of Sheldon Pollock's Use of Chronology, written in 2016, in which we introduced, amongst other things, the framework ABC of Indian chronology. Presented in 2017 at IGNCA, this paper was recognized with a Best Paper Award. In late 2017, we presented at IIT Madras the paper, the A of ABC of Indian Chronology. We will go into some details of this paper uh, later in the presentation. It was in 2017 that our institutional academic engagement with ICHR in Meiti uh, through citizen mechanisms was followed by changes to the ancient Indian history narrative in a link on our country's website, the National Portal of India. More on this as well later. In 2018, dating Gautama Buddha's Parinirvana, a critique of Heinz Beschert's Eco uh, Chamber, was published in Mythic Society's Quarterly Journal. A version of this paper titled The Bee of ABC of Indian Chronology, Dating Buddha's Parinirvana, was presented at the Revisitic Indic Chronology Conference organized by IGNCA and IHAR in 2019, the proceedings of which have been published in 2021. In 2019, we were invited to present Saraswati in the Mahabharata, a study at the third international conference on Saraswati River in Punjab University. Later that year, we presented the same Saraswati paper and Aryan problem from the perspective of textual evidence and linguistics at a multidisciplinary conference in Delhi University. The abstract of a paper titled Re-examining Indology, the place of a reliable Bharatiya chronology was shortlisted for presentation at IIAS ICCR International Conference in early 21, titled Re-examining Indology, Retrospect and Prospect. Of course, thereafter, COVID happened. In the post-COVID era, we were invited to present aspects of our framework, ABC of Indian chronology, in different seminars, conferences, and this is our first talk in 2022. Moving on to why chronology? Are we making a case for reducing all the study of the past to only chronology? Not at all. 
To reduce the study of the past only to chronology would certainly be reductionist. And such reductionism would do no justice to genres such as Itihasas, Alankara Shastras, amongst others, which are a storehouse for, as scholars have reasoned, far more meaning, like Indic notions of ethics, value, governance, etc. Therefore, when some scholars warn about reducing the study of the past, at least the Indic past, to only chronology, that is a warning we find utterly meaningful. While we while every study of the past need not be focused on only chronology or reduced to only chronology, and while everyone studying the past need, need not focus on only chronology, it can't be too sound a case, in our view at least, that chronology can be or is to be completely ignored. Vamshavalis, for instance, did exist in the Indic traditions as well. Ignoring chronology altogether in the current times, however, can lead to inventions of new cause and effects, new ethic comparative histories, with anachronistic distortions, appropriations with three attributions and more. The origins of karma and dhyana in the works of Dr. Bronkhorst, for instance, are good examples of potential victims of reattribution of ideas of the Vedic corpus, including the Upanishads, through either altering of or ignoring information from the Vedic corpus or both. Therefore, chronology. With the case for chronology having been made, we now proceed to the next why. Why the ABC of Indian chronology? There are at least two reasons. First, Aryan migrations, the epoch of Buddha and that of Chandragupta Maurya are near constants in most mainstream publications dealing with pre-BCE epochs related to early India. Second, any change to any of these would have, in our assessment, a disproportionate ripple effect of profound consequence. If Aryan migration into India hypothesis is disproved, then it could lead to potential restoration about the truth of the spatial and temporal origins of civilizational assets, such as the earliest form of Sanskritam and the Veda. If the epoch of Buddha and or Chandragupta Maurya, sheet anchor, is changed, that will have a cascading effect on other aspects of Indian chronology. And we'll get into more details of this. Starting with the C of ABC of Indian chronology. On screen now is perhaps the earliest book-length English publication dealing exclusively with Indian chronology. Mabel Duff's The Chronology of India, published in 1899. The entry for Chandragupta Maurya is on the screen right now. Note the portion highlighted that the Buddha's death as determined by the initial date assigned to the screen. Note the word assigned. Who assigned it? Duff gives, Duff gives us the answer. To Sir William Jones, we own the identification of Sandrocotus or Sandrocoptus of the Greek writers with Chandragupta, the founder of the Maurya dynasty. William Jones was writing this in the end of the 18th century, which was more than a century after and under the influence of the Usher chronology, posited by James Usher, who pegged the creation of the world itself in 4004 BCE. Charles Petzold has traced the evolution of this initially famous but eventually infamous history of the Usher chronology as seen in the Encyclopedia Britannica, which would make for some really entertaining reading for which we don't unfortunately have the time right now. Under the constraint placed by, and having accepted the Ashur's creations hypothesis, William Jones was busy truncating the Bharatiya chronology he came across then in the 18th century to force fit it into the frame of biblical chronology. The table that you see on the right of the screen is an example of such an effort from his work. William Jones's synchronism, wholly conjectural as it was, based on questionable phonetic similarity, 
which if even admitted does not explain why he should have thought sandrakota should be the maurya chandragupta and should not be the gupta chandragupta but that did find publishing currency very quickly on the left you see the names of some indologists who admitted this synchronism unchallenged starting from jones through wilford mill princep elphinstone muller duff smith yangunda uh, as well as up to pollock in the late 20th century and 21st century on the right though is an example for european scholar from france who called out the eurocentrism underlying this conjectural synchronism let's read a google translation of what troya wrote in the middle of the 19th century that chandragupta according to the hindus lived 1502 years before the christian era chandragupta is not the sandrakotas we must above all leave aside the opinions of european writers today this was a european calling out eurocentrism in the 19th century one reason his record is important is because he tells us when chandragupta was believed to have lived uh, before and during the times of william jones and that is important we are not the first to call out this synchronism uh, kd setna's name uh, was mentioned by sampanathan ji uh, earlier this is his book we are not the first to call this out in our paper purapaksha of the sheldon pollock's use of chronology we have traced scholars both western and indian who called this out which includes the likes of proya krishnamacharya pandit pandit kota venkatachalam amongst others more on the sea of abc of indian chronology in that paper moving on to now one of the bees of the abc of indian chronology the epoch of gautama buddha recall the entry for chandragupta maurya in duff's book of chronology that the epoch of buddha's death 477 bce was determined by the year assigned to chandragupta maurya in working on the epoch of buddha we chose to engage with heinz beschert's influential volume this huge big book which we don't know how many people know of when did the buddha live published in english in the mid 1990s why this volume for one we found it to be amongst the most if not the most voluminous 387 pages multidisciplinary publication that concerns itself pointedly with the epoch of buddha this book is cited as a key reference in the textbooks for undergraduate history students both in india and outside and it has been hailed as a tectonic shift in what dominic wujastic has called revolutions in indology the significance of buddha's epoch at least in mainstream indology can be gauged from this excerpt quote most chronological calculations concerning the age of brahmanic literary works on the development of early middle indic languages etc are based on this date because both western and south asian researchers made all relevant calculations using this chronology as a starting point the same may be said for many datings of archaeological finds in the pre mauryan period unquote this is part of the reason why the epoch of buddha makes it into the abc framework a change to it will have as per beshert and as we have mentioned before as well a cascading effect on aspects of indian chronology both before and after the buddha and it is precisely a change to buddha's nirvana from the 5th century bce 477 bce that we saw in duff's chronology to 4th century bce between 400 bc and 350 bc in beshert's view that has led to beshert's work to be featured as part of dominic wujastic's tectonic shift we don't have the time to go through every aspect of our paper in this regard but staying at a bird's eye view level we have critically engaged with the essays of beshert siglin dites and herbal hartel in the book and excerpts from our section wide conclusions of this paper are now on the slide 
Again, we are not going to go into the details of each of these conclusions. It's a separate paper and a presentation altogether. And people who are interested in this can refer to our papers, which are all freely accessible on academia. What we think though differentiates our work vis-a-vis -vis the epoch of Buddha includes the combination of these four factors. Our approach, which is to essentially engage with the mainstream, right? Not go around it, but engage with the mainstream, as is perhaps the first published critique of portions of the Beshert volume from an Indic point of view. Uh, our approach is multidisciplinary. In this case, disciplines involve philology, archaeology, and astronomy. And finally, our bias towards being conservative in date estimates and our quest to be comprehensive. Conrad Elst and Samdong Rinpoche are amongst the ones who have remarked on our effort. Moving on to the next B, Bharata, which is Mahabharata. While our work on the Mahabharata is ongoing, a part of which was presented, as mentioned in 2019, in our paper Saraswati in the Mahabharata, a study at Punjab University. A, quick, a few quick points about why we wrote this paper in the first place. For evidence of descriptions about the flow of the river Saraswati in ancient Indian texts, that is actually nothing new. Many scholars have not only written about its flow perceived in the Rig Veda, but also used the evidence in conjunction with evidence from other fields, including but not limited to geology, archaeology, geomorphology, geohydrology, satellite imagery, to reason for a terminus antiquum, what you see on your left, terminus antiquum for the epoch of the Rig Veda that is before 2600, 2900 BCE, when considerable loss of Saraswati is estimated from other uh, evidence such as archeology span and Michelle's fantastic book uh, is available on this as her subsequent presentations on this topic. While that was the case with the Rig Veda, when it came to the Mahabharata though, we, we noticed an inversion from the terminus antiquum from the Rig Veda to a terminus from the terminus uh, antiquum for the Rig Veda to a terminus postquem in the case of Mahabharata. The above terminus postquem argument uh, appears to us to be hinged on the presumption that the entire text of Mahabharata attested to only a disappeared or a lost Saraswati with no evidence of it flowing elsewhere. Is that really the case though? Is it really the case that there is no evidence of Saraswati other than what is there in the Venishana Tirtha? Now, while we don't have the time to go through every aspect of this paper, again, the image on the right of the slide might serve as a bird's eye view. The entire critical edition, which is around 80,000 verses, we found in it 222 verses at least, 222 occurrences of the string Saraswati in its different forms. Of the 222, in our philological analysis, we see at least 144 to be related to the river Saraswati. Out of these 144, we see at least 50 to be related uh, to Saraswati at some degree of flow. In some cases, it is flowing mightily, like how it was mentioned in the Rigveda. But in other cases, it talks about a flow which has either petered down or completely disappeared. Now, on the back of this whole text evidence of uh, at least 222 occurrences, we are hopefully positing a more nuanced view while being conservative of a terminus antiquum of 1900 BCE, at least for this memory of those portions of the text where the river is meant to be in flow, right? In some cases with vigorous flow. On the left of the screen now, you will see a combination of factors that we think differentiates our work in the context of Saraswati. And on the right are reactions to our uh, paper from Padmashree recipient, Dr. Subhashkar, 
and Mahamahopadhyaya, Dr. Kurada Subramanian. But in a nutshell, our uh, work is primary source based. We have done text-wide analysis. We have not just picked on Arundhati and Vasishta, for instance, or just looked at Saraswati in one place, Tirtha, uh, uh, Vinashana Tirtha. Uh, we are being conservative when there's a range, 1,600 to 1,900. We tend towards 1,900 and multidisciplinary. With this, I pass it on now to Manugna to take us through the A of ABC of Indian chronology. Thank you, Manugna. Thank you, mate. Uh, we're grateful, in fact, for this opportunity to present our work on the Aryan issue against the backdrop of that by one of the world's greatest sages and thinkers of the 20th century. Uh, it is indeed remarkable that even as we present some of the specifics of our work on the subject, uh, Sri Aurobindo has drawn attention in his signature Pellucid style uh, to the many issues that have played the understanding of the Vedas, which, as even uh, Professor Danino has uh, shown us earlier, he considered the bedrock of the Hindu canon and the role of the terms Arya and Dravida since the predominant control of Indology by the Europeans. Uh, material, for instance, from his Vedic and Philological Studies, unpublished during his lifetime, as mentioned earlier, and material from it which was developed and later published in both The Secret of the Veda and Hymns to the Mystic Fire, show his salient thoughts on European scholarship on the issue of the study of the Vedas during his time and the resultant consequences, which are as relevant today as they were then. He regarded the European handling of the Vedas as one which essentially reduced it to a mass of incoherent rubbish, and that future Indians would take away from their translations that their oldest texts were meaningless. While we do not wish to go into Sri Aurobindo's thoughts on the Vedas in their entirety, for that is beyond the scope and aim of our presentation, what does help is highlighting some of his key remarks regarding the basis of the misleading scholarship that has been at the heart of this issue for the past two centuries. Sri Harbindo has been unambiguous in calling out the European account of the Vedic civilization in scathing terms, such as the characterization of the Vedas being the sacred chants of a rude, primitive race of agriculturists sacrificing to very material gods for very material benefits, and the gods themselves were merely poetical personifications of natural elements, to which the semi-savage Vedic mind attributed by crude personal analogy, a personality and a presiding form. The rishis were seen as, as sacrificing priests of an invading Aryan race, dwelling on the banks of the Punjab rivers, and a race of frank, cheerful pagans fighting the black Dravidians whom they called the Dasyus or robbers. Crude prototypes, these of Homeric, Greek, and Scandinavian writing. In the earlier hymns, the vocabulary, archaic and almost unintelligible, allows an adroit and industrious scholarship, waving in its hand the magic wand of philology to conjure into it whatever meaning may be most suitable to modern beliefs or preferable to the European temperament. Highlighting the impact of this theory on the Indian mind has been important to our work as well. Uh, Sri Aurobindo remarks that the European account creates a schism between the Veda and the Vedanta, as we've seen earlier as well today, and casts India's beginnings into a mold characterized by naturalism, materialism, paganism, almost Greco-Roman in nature, and that no satisfactory explanation has been given of the strange transformation in the soul of the Indian people in the European account. Given this characterization, it is not surprising, he remarks, that theories should have been started attributing to Vedanta and Brahmavada a Dravidian origin and a part of the intellectual property taken over by the Aryan conquerors from the more civilized races they dispossessed. 
Understanding the implications and states of the Aryan issue has been central to our work in chronology. Our 2017 paper recognized that whether posited as an invasion by or migration of the Aryans, the variant forms of this into India hypothesis are underpinned by one constant. The consequence that priceless civilizational assets, such as the earliest forms of Vedic culture and Sanskritam, are not indigenous to Indian subcontinent. We highlight this because this often seems to be missed out in the other more familiar arguments, including the forced parity between the so-called migrating Aryans and subsequent invaders of India, including the Islamic and British colonizations. We also clarify that pursuing verifiable truth about the temporal and spatial origins of Vedas and Sanskritam is not the same as claiming Ved Indian culture is synonymous with or identical to Aryan or Sanskritam or the Vedic culture, denying any linguistic interactions between Sanskritam and other Indic languages, or claiming Sanskritam to be either superior to any other Indian language or claiming it to be the oldest. Given what is at stake, our work on the Aryan issue has been multidisciplinary and addresses a few issues at the heart of the use of Western linguistics on the matter. Sri Aurobindo, writing a hundred plus years ago, sets the perfect context and hits the nail on the head when he pinpoints the fundamental issues with the use of European philology especially its understanding of the Vedas in framing and building the typical Western account of the Aryan civilization and the invasion or migration scenarios. He modernly remarks that since the invasion of European scholarship into India, for the first time, the intimate connection and substantial identity of the Vedas and later scriptures has been denied. That our new Western pundits and authorities tell us that we are in error and that European scholarship has discovered that the Vedas are of an entirely different character from the rest of our Hindu development. Further, the Vedas, it seems, were not revealed to great and ancient rishis, but composed by the priests of a small invading Aryan race of agriculturists and warriors akin to the Greeks and Persians who encamped some 1500 years before Christ in Punjab, he writes. Specifically on European methods of comparative philology, Sri Aurobindo remarks that the failure of comparative philology to develop a sound scientific basis and to create a true science of language has been one of the conspicuous intellectual disappointments of the 19th century. He writes this at his time. While the philologists have indeed established some useful identities and a few rules of phonetical modification and detrition, he observes that the rest is hypothesis and plausible conjecture and remarks that we are therefore at liberty, even on the ground of European science and knowledge to hesitate before the conclusions of philological scholarship. Further, on European methods of comparative philology, Sri Aurobindo remarks that the science of comparative religion in Europe seems to him to be based on a blunder. He finds in the Aryan and Dravidian tons and races not separate and unconnected families, but two branches of a single stock. He remarks, the legend of the Aryan invasion and settlement in the Punjab in Vedic times is to me a philological myth. The naturalistic interpretation of the Vedas I accept only as a transference or adhyaropa of European ideas into the Veda, foreign to the mentality of the Vedic rishis. And Max Miller's discovery of Vedic henotheism is a brilliant but ingenious error. Additionally, he believes that these large generalizations and assumptions ought no longer to pass current as unchallengeable truth or the final knowledge about the Vedas written 100 plus years ago. Questioning the primacy accorded to linguistic data and its use in philological arguments of the Aryan issue, especially at the cost of it accounting with results from other verifiable domains has been important to our work. 
Sri Aurobindo's words again a century ago frame the issue oppositely when he remarks specifically that we attach an undue importance and value to the affirmative conclusions of, of European philology because it is systematic in its errors and claims to be a science. Beyond one or two generalizations of the mutations followed by words in the approach through the various Aryan languages and a certain number of grammatical rectifications and rearrangements resulting in a less arbitrary view of linguistic relations, modern philology has discovered no really binding law or rule of, for its own guidance. It has fixed one or two sure signposts. The rest is speculation and conjecture. We are there, not therefore bound to worship at the shrines of comparative science and comparative mythology and offer up on these dubious altars, the Veda and the Vedanta, he writes. Further, he says, we should realize that these so-called sciences of comparative philology and comparative mythology on which the European interpretation of Veda is founded are not true sciences at all. They are rather, if sciences at all, in pseudosciences. Given this background from Sri Aurobindo's own writings on the particular issues of the, on the Aryan matter, we now delineate some of the major points of our work considered through three major dimensions. Sharing the same skepticism of methods which privilege dubious philological methods at the expense of evidences from other domains and indigenous sources, dimension one of our work deals with the very approach to the debate and considers the limitations of using linguistics alone to arrive at either absolute chronology or any definite conclusions about the origins of the earliest form of the Vedas or Sanskritam, irrespective of what can or cannot be shown through Indo-European linguistics, what is important is to remember that no absolute chronologies can be deduced from the methods of historical linguistics alone. And this is even seen in the works of even professional linguists such as Claxon and Perilswade, whom we've quoted here. Analysis particularly of the terms Arya and Dravida has been key to our work. And before we present it, we draw attention again to the sage's thoughts particularly on them. When he says that, the real basis of both the Aryan theory of Vedic civilization and the astronomical theory of Aryan myth is the new interpretation given to a host of Vedic vocables by comparative philologists. The Aryan theory rests on the ingenious assumption that Anarya, Dasyu, or Dasa in the Veda refer to the unfortunate indigenous races who by a familiar modern device were dubbed robbers and decoits because they were guilty of defending their country against the invaders. And Arya is a national term for the invaders who called themselves, according to Mats Miller, the plowmen and according to others, the noble race. Further, he contends that Anarya, Dasa and Dasyu do not for a moment refer to the Dravidian races. And indeed, that he is disposed to doubt whether there was ever any such entity in India as a separate Aryan or a separate Dravidian race. He remarks that the whole European theory and European interpretation of the Vedas may be not unjustly described as a huge conjectural and uncertain generalization built on an inadequate and shifting mass of conjectural particulars. Further, he remarks that all, therefore, that is proved is not the identity of these tongues, but their contact. So close a contact of one with the rest that a number of the communist ideas and relations came in all to be expressed by terms borrowed from one. Nothing more is proved. We have not advanced a single step towards the science of languages, even the classification of tongues as Aryan, Dravidian, Semitic cannot be called scientific. It is empirical and depends upon the identities which may not be fundamental. We must grow deeper, he writes, before he proceeds to explaining on his own theories. 
Having considered the need for approaching the debate from multidisciplinary means, we also believe that linguistics itself should consider for contextual analysis as well as primary data, the colossal repository of linguistic material, especially textual from India and re-examine its aggregate in light of the data and our dimension two in our paper addresses this. Sri Aurobindo's thoughts on the meanings of the terms Arya and Dravida are in fact the perfect backdrop against which our own study of some of the earliest Sanskritam texts, including the Rigveda, Ramayana, Mahabharata, Brahmapurana, Skandapurana, Nakishastra, and so on. In total, a documentation of 204 occurrences of the terms Arya and Dravida from 13 different texts to present a depth view of their contrast with the distortions surrounding the terms Aryan and Dravidian themselves and to place these terms in their rightful frame so that the original Sanskrit meanings of, these de of this deeply impactful theory find their authentic roots. More specifically, in our paper, we have listed and tabulated as exhaustively as we can and analyze utterances of Arya and Dravida in order to answer these questions. What is the range of meanings evident from the usage of Arya and Dravida? Is there any evidence of an invasion of Dravida by Arya? Is there any evidence for a migration of Aryas from outside and into India? Is there any evidence for Aryas migrating into India along with Samskritam? And is there any evidence to directly link Dravida with Dasyu? The answer to questions two through five in, as seen in our work are a clear no. We found no evidence for an invasion of Dravida by Arya, no evidence for a migration of Aryas from outside and into India, no evidence for Aryas migrated into India along with Samskritam, and no evidence to directly link Dravida with Dasyu. We refer anybody interested to see the details to check out the tables of the terms and the analysis in our paper for further details. Considering the background from Sri Aurobindo's own writings on the particular issue of comparative philology, our work has examined the comparative method and highlighted its characteristic of being riddled with confirmation bias. The steps outlined in Lyle Campbell's Historical Linguistics and Introduction, in fact, reads that in step one of the comparative method, we look for potential coordinates among related languages or among languages for which there is reason to suspect relatedness. Naturally, the question of circularity presents itself. If languages are already related, what relationship remains to be established? Interestingly, even senior scientists at Department of Linguistics and Cultural Evolution at the Max Planck University for the Science of Human History, Johann Mattis, alludes to how surprised even biologists are about the restrictions in the comparative method followed by linguists. A summary of the three dimensions through which the Aryan issue is considered in our paper is now presented here. While dimension one considered how Western linguistics is not and cannot be the primary source for a resolution to the Aryan problem, especially when it relates to the origins of Indian civilization and consequently the chronology of ancient India, dimension two has demonstrated through a detailed search and study of the occurrences of the terms Arya and Dravida in some of the earliest indigenous Samskritam texts, no basis for an Aryan invasion or migration into India, armed with the import of Rigveda and Samskritam. Further, in dimension three, our work included some critiques of the domain's methods, has considered the results of two recent quantitative studies, which considered significant correlations among Indian languages, 
and undertook a detailed purva paksha of contributors to linguistics from within the domain. It has also provided an original critique of the law of palatals, compiled a chronological table of 88 people associated with Western linguistics, and highlighted the potential appropriations from Sanskritam by the scholar attributed the tag, the first great American linguist, William Dwight Whitney. We have been grateful for some of the feedback we have received from the domain's prominent scholars, such as Professor Subhash Dak and Professor uh, Torada Subramaniam, uh, shown here on the right um, on our paper. Uh, this paper is also differentiated in the domain by its three dimensions. That is the philological analysis of 204 utterances of the terms Arya and Dravida in key Indic texts to answer important questions of the Aryan issue, problematizing the Indo-Aryan Dravidian language families through quantitative analysis, providing an original critique of the law of palatals in historical, uh, in historical linguistics, and fourthly, through an impactful measure that made refer to at the beginning of the presentation, that is the changes in the national portal of India regarding the Aryan issue. Having seen this far, what is at stake? And considering Sri Aurobindo's prescient remarks a century ago, it should be evident why it is ironical that our own national portal of India until early part of 2017, not only carried the invasion by the Aryans litany, but also more damaging statements such as the ones above. We noticed changes though, as represented by the strike through in this slide from uh, 2017 June, which followed our about six month engagement with PMO, ICHR, METI, National Information challenge precise, challenging precisely these statements through RTI and public grievances specified herein. We thank the team at Rashtram for inviting us today uh, to today's uh, webinar and all of you for your time and patience, such incredible scholars present over here. Uh, we are open to taking any questions related to our work uh, specific to the current presentation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Megji and Manubraji for this extensive research and so beautifully explaining the Aryan invasion and the epoch of Buddha and the Mahabharata and the epoch and the confusion that lies between Chandragupta Maurya and Chandragupta of the Gupta dynasty. Now I would like to ask Amritangsuji to present his findings and then we can have a quick round of discussions and Q&A. Yeah, Amritangsuji. Megji, yeah. Namaste. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me to Vaichariki. And uh, Megsar mentioned how it's a very difficult task to follow someone of the stature of Danino sir. Well, I'm following not just Danino sir, but Megsar and Manogna ma'am. So I think my task is even tougher. Now, uh, what I want to cover today is I want to give one example of how the historical narratives we make and the conclusions we form about our history, our chronology, are dependent on so many different pillars. And if one thing changes, it forces us to relook at a lot of other things where the, the certainties with which the narratives are given to us are actually not justified uh, given the actual facts and findings. And I want to talk about this with example of the Dasharajnya, which is also known as the Battle of Ten Kings. It's a very vital account in the Rig Veda. And I want to use that as an example of how we can append existing narratives or at the very least question the validity, the certainty of existing narratives. So what we should understand, first of all, is that history itself is a combination of two things. 
The first thing is that it is composed of facts and findings. So for example, the linguistic unity of Indo-European languages, this is one fact and finding, or chariots and horses in the Rigveda. this is another fact and finding, or movements of genetic haplogroups, another fact and finding. But each of these fact and findings, first of all, have uncertainties in them also. So in the previous talk, we saw how the linguistic unity of Indo-European languages, there are many reasons to reconsider this, to question this, uh, the way boxes are drawn between Indo-European languages, Dravidian languages. So it may be presented to us as a fact, but it is actually a questionable fact, and it is not a certainty. Similarly, on chariots and horses in the Rigveda, in fact, the Nino Sir has a brilliant paper on demilitarizing the Rigveda, where he talks about how chariots and horses being characteristic of the Aryans uh, itself is a very questionable thing. And of course, now we have an ever-changing landscape, which is the genetic landscape, of all kinds of haplogroups coming in and going out of the Indian subcontinent. So these, this is one set, but what is done with set of facts and findings is that narratives are formed. And so we have today a narrative of the origin and dispersal of PIE or the Proto-Indo-European language. And this narrative is of an origin and dispersal from outside India somewhere leading to an Aryan invasion, migration, trickling in theory. And the critical thing to keep in mind here is that once narratives are formed, even new facts and findings are subsumed and tautologically fit into the existing narrative. So new facts and findings, if the narrative is entrenched, do not force us to question the narrative again. So for example, the Aryan invasion theory was already well established before we discovered the Indus Valley civilization. But discovering an indigenous archaeological civilization only made us change the theory to Aryan migration. And Aryan migration itself was well established before genetics entered the landscape. But now new genetic findings are tautologically fit onto the old model uh, as, as they stand. So this is what history really is, that facts and findings along with narrative. And in the Dash Rajnia case, I want to give you an example of how we can look at facts and findings and come to a new narrative if we don't start with an AIT or AMT model. So the Dasrajni account, we're told, it is an account of Aryan arrival into India. That's what we're told. Uh, it is also told by scholars such as Witzel that it is a proto-narrative for the Mahabharata. So Witzel says that the Mahabharata itself might have been inspired by the tale of the Dasrajni. And to give an example of uh, narratives, which are not necessarily, you know, foreign scholars or indologists coming into the story, but we are told that the Dasharajniya is a kind of rivalry between Vishru, Vishwamitra and Vasishtha. So this is what we know currently. Uh, and just to quote here, I will read so a quote by Witzel that the Dasharajniya is a battle of 10 kings of the five peoples of the Punjab, Yadu, Turvash, Anu, Druhuyu, and Puru against the Bharat king Sudas. This is what Witzel says. And I will also quote here uh, Janino, sir, who says that anyone expecting a workable, even partial or poetic narrative of this event on which so much historical reconstruction has been attempted will be disappointed. So this is just an example of two uh, opposing views on this, uh, on the Dash Rajnia account. Now, when we move forward, so I want to, I want to quote here uh, uh, Conrad Elst, who says for Talageri, sir, that Talageri has single-handedly won the AIT debate. So, and what has happened is that the Dash Rajnia account, actually, if you look at some findings, is clinching evidence. And it is clinching evidence, in fact, on the OIT side or out of India side. Uh, we will see now how that happens. 
that evidence is the evidence of the final five Indo-European speaking branches on the Parushani River in the time of Sudhas. So the Parushani River is the Ravi River in modern Punjab. And in the Dashrajniya account, we find evidence of the final five Eastern, which is the Eastern Indo-European speaking lang languages on the Ravi River. Therefore, we have evidence of all five of them in the modern Punjab region. And if that isn't clinching evidence, in fact, for OIT, then I don't know what is. Uh, but let us go through it once again. I'm going to quote here uh, just a few uh, uh, suktas from the Rig Veda, and the highlighted words are of interest. So this is RV 7185, where we have a word called Shimyum. Uh, this is from the Dashtajnya hymns. Uh, we have RV 7187, where we have Paktaso, Bhalanaso, Alenaso, Vishaninaha, and Shivasaha. These are words of interest. I will come to uh, uh, why that is so. And we also have RV 783.1, where we have Prithu Parshav. So these are some words of interest, and we will see why. Uh, so before we understand that, uh, let us just uh, look at uh, the concept of folk etymology. So we have notions uh, today, for example, that England is actually Angulistan, or that Vatican is Ved Vatika, or that Bogota is Bogavati. So these are examples of folk etymology, which is you know whimsical connection between two words. And rightly so, we should be uh, skeptical and critical of folk etymology. But we should also keep in mind that, you know, when we are told that Sandrokotis is equal to Chandragupta, uh, it is not that Tiki's 33 rules of etymology were followed in making that connection. We should keep in mind that when we are told that the Sumerians, when they were talking about Meluha and the Aryans, when they were talking about Mlecha, that Maluha and Mlecha were actually the same thing, which is the Indus Valley civilization. So actually, etymological connections are made with tenuous uh, uh, evidence, even by uh, respected or established scholars. But we are not talking about you know, basic folk etymology. We are going to talk about fair philological, cultural reasons for connecting words and to see a trail of linguistic dispersal out of India. So I will start by quoting Wigzel, who is an Indologist, a mainstream scholar. He himself says that the word Bhalan that we just uh, visited in Titash Rajnya may represent the Bolan area in modern Balochistan. Now, uh, uh, Talageri goes a step further. He says that if Bhalan is mentioned there and we can connect it to the Baloches, then just before Bhalan, we have the word Pakta. And so Pakta can be connected to the Pakhtuns. And he also makes further connections between the Shimyus and the Sarmatians and Serimas, who are all attested Indo-European language speakers of a later era. We, we can go further. Talagari points out to the Alins. We know that the Alins, uh, the uh, Alins are connected linguistically to later people, the Helens, the Alanis, the Halanis, the Alans, the Alanoi. These are all names attested later for linguistically Indo-Iranian people. Uh, going further, we have the Shivas, which can be connected to the Kivas, the Shivas, the Sivis, the Sevyas, again, linguistically Indo-European people. And we have the evidence of Kavi, Kavash, which are attested in Avestan, so in Iranian tradition, as Kauvi, as Kawas. And of course, the most clinching, we have Parthavs, which we know are Parthians. We have Parshavs, which we know are Persians. We have Dasas, which we know are the Dahe. And we have Bhrigu where the connection may seem tenuous to you, but you know, by the rules of language, the, the bhar sound, the bhar sound of Sanskrit is often represented with the fur sound in Greek. And r sound and l sound are interchangeable in, in archaic Sanskrit. So bhrigu and frigian are actually the same word by rules of language. And it is also connectable to phlegwai, 
who were fire priests in Greek tradition and in Vedic tradition, Bhrigu was known as the introducer of fire. So there are sound linguistic and semantic reasons for making these connections. When we make these connections, what do we find out? We see that the Eastern IE languages, which was Greek, Albanian, Armenian, Iranian, Trekophrygian, we see a trail and evidence of them in the Dash Rajnya itself. So we have Alins, which were Proto-Greek, Proto-Albanian, Proto-Armenian. We have the Prigus as Proto-Trekophrygians, and we have the Parthals and more as Proto-Iranians. Now, before you feel skeptical here, let us think of one thing at least, that the Iranian, the Proto-Iranian evidence is beyond doubt because we have Parthavs, Parshavs, Dasas, which become Dahe in Iran. So we know for a fact that the Proto-Iranians were definitely in Punjab. Now, what does that mean? Because the standard model tells us that Indo-Iranians were at some kind of unity prior to their entry into India. But here we have clinching evidence that the Proto-Iranians were already in Punjab. So now what are we going to do about the existing narrative? Should we say that, oh, they came to Punjab to drop off their Indian brothers and then they went off to Iran? It doesn't make sense. So if we have clinching evidence of the Proto-Iranians in Punjab, we should be honest enough to extend that conclusion and see that, yes, we have evidence of Proto-Helens, Proto-Alanis, Proto-Sarmatians, Proto-Phrygians also in Punjab which is that the final five IE branches actually did disperse out of India. And this is evidence that can be gleaned simply from the Dashrajniya hymns, nothing else. Whereas it has been ignored by all modern Indologists, more egregiously, a lot of modern translations erase a lot of these words. So in the modern English translation of the Rig Veda by Jameson Brereton, they actually translate a lot of these words uh, literally and don't even take them as proper names. Therefore, removing the evidence for future researchers uh, to find. Therefore, what can we now come to? We can come to a new narrative, which is that the PIE homeland was in India, uh, or at least the Northwest Indian subcontinent. We can say that sometime during the mature Harappan, and I will come to how we can say that. And we can say that it is a critical dispersal event for IE languages, at least the third wave of it, uh, where the first wave was Anatolian, Tokarian, the second wave was Western IE languages, and this being the Eastern IE languages. We also have the Saraswati evidence, which was talked about in the previous uh, uh, presentation, which is very critical because the Dash Rajnya time is clearly a time of a full-fledged Saraswati going from the mountains to the ocean. So it is before the uh, drying up period of the Saraswati river. Uh, we also can see from the Dashrajnya evidence that it is actually an account of Sudha's campaigns into modern Afghanistan and Pakistan from, from India. So not from you know, somewhere outside Northwest into India, but from India towards Afghanistan, Pakistan. We can see that it is an account of several warring tribes. Some are nomadic, some are settled. And Sudha's people, in fact, you know, uh, seem to be the ones who are more settled. So it's other tribes raiding into their territories. It's other tribes trying to steal their cattle. Uh, most importantly, the entire Dashrajnya account has no mention of horses or chariots. The entire Dashrajnya account, where it does mention horses, is on two instances. One, where it is referred to Indra's horse, horse so in a mythological sense. And second, where it is said that horse heads are given to Sudas as tributary. That's it. But there is no indication of a war on horses, definitely not on char chariots. And uh, given the hymns, they talk about how the enemies of Sudas, they disturb the flow of rivers and streams, all of which is happening along the Parushni River or the modern Ravi River. 
So we have evidence of canal destruction along this river. And we know that during the mature phase of the Harappan civilization, where Harappa itself was uh, on the Ravi River, uh, it was a very well-irrigated mature civilization. So, and this account in fact continues. So in later mandals of the Rigveda, we have descendants of Sudhas, uh, Somak and Sahadev, who are again uh, waging war and they form in a treaty with their Iranian counterparts somewhere in modern Afghanistan, which is known as the Varshagir account. And it is attested, the Varshagir account is attested both in, in the Rigveda and in the Avesta. So from both sides of the Indo-Iranian divide. So now when we revise, the Dashrajnaya. What can we see? It is actually an account of power consolidation by Sudhas. He battles a lot of different tribes. He battles the Yadus near Yamuna. He battles the Anavs near Punjab. Uh, we can also keep into in mind the Ramayan synchronism, which is a very important synchronism because Sudhas' ancestor is Devodas. Now, in the Rig Veda, Devodas battles a Das named Shambhar. In the Ramayan, Dashrat battles a, 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 an Asur named Shambhar. Uh, in Devodas' time, the Anavs and, uh, uh, near his, uh, in modern Punjab, who are divided into tribes such as the Kekeyas and the Madras, they are allies of Devodas. Dashrath, he battles in Keke, and in fact, he brings home a wife by the name of Keke. And it is also said that it, at the coronation of Ram, the son of Devodas, which is Pratardhan, is present. So this gives us some very compelling reasons to uh, find synchronism between Ramayana and the Rigveda. And if this is true, it tells us that Indo-Aryan languages were already well-established even in the Eastern Gangetic Plains by Sudha's time. So again, keep in, look at the original narrative that the Dash Rajni account is somehow an account of Aryans entering India and waging war on the natives. Well, we already have Sudha's warring so many different tribes along multiple rivers, Yamuna, the Parushni, and we already have Indo-Aryan languages well-entrenched in Eastern Ganga. So what kind of invasion is this happening? And uh, as I mentioned, it's the enemies that steal cattle. Uh, we are shown that they leave possessions and cities behind as they flee. Uh, we have evidence of a possible Raj Suya campaign by Sudhas at the end of uh, all of this, where, which is where actually Vasisht speaks out some of the original mantras of the Dash Rajneer. And even more, there is no Vasisht Vishwamitra rivalry at all, anywhere in the Dash Rajneer. That, in fact, is found by people by somehow mixing Rig Vedic and Puranic evidence in confusing ways. I won't detail that. But on the merit of Rig Vedic evidence alone, uh, all we can say is that Sudha's primary Purohit is Vasisht. It remains Vasisht. It's only briefly uh, for his help in, in crossing one or two rivers is where Sudha's takes the help of Vishwamitra. There's nothing more than that. So is Sudhas then the greatest conqueror? Never know, because when we take out of India as the working model, and when we look at the Dashrajnya account in that light, we see that it fits very well into the model, and it in fact proves uh, the second wave of uh, IE dispersal uh, after the Western languages had already dispersed out. We can see that it will coincide with phases of Harappan archaeology. And Given that uh, we know that the Saraswati started drying up around 1900 BC, so we will have to put Sudhas sometime before that. We will have to give fair period for some later mandals of the Rig Veda. So technically, Sudhas starts, uh, we can start placing Sudhas somewhere around 2500 BC, which would line up with mature Harappan. So he might just be the greatest Harappan ruler we never knew. And none of this is certain. I'm not making this as, you know, clinching conclusions that now should uh, form the narrative for all of future. But I'm giving this to you as an example 
that when we start looking at these things from a different light, and when we start looking at these facts and findings without being colored by one narrative in particular, we might in fact reach a different narrative. Uh, now to this, I also want to say that uh, so we can compare that, what was the old narrative? The old narrative, I will quote Witzel, is that the Dash Rajneel celebrates the victory of Sudhas in the Battle of the Ten Kings, which once and for all established Bharat supremacy in the Punjab and set the stage for the formation of the first South Asian state under the Kuru tribe. This is what Witzel says. But given that we can look at the Dash Rajneel, first of all, as Sudhas being an Indian king, an indigenous king, when we look at it, we see that the era of Ramayana has already happened. That means that the opening of Northern and Southern India that we see in Ram's story has already happened. In fact, it is perhaps no surprise that that is why in the Dash Rajneel hymns, we see that Agastya Metra Varuni is introduced to Sudhas. And we know that Ram, uh, when he uh, moved, uh, visited Southern India, that is the opening up of Agastya Rishis and perhaps the period when Agastya Rishis started coming to Northern India. We see evidence of that in Sudhas time. And we also know that building from the kind of opening of Northern India and Southern India by Sudhas time and by the time of his descendants, there is a much greater consolidation that happens uh, towards modern Pakistan and Afghanistan. So in fact, the counter narrative is that the Dash Rajneya, it celebrates the victories of Sudhas in his battles against 10 kings, which once and for all established Bharat supremacy in Northern India, ushered in the mature Harappan and triggered the dispersal of Eastern IE languages and set the stage for the formation of Proto Bharatvash. This is in fact a counter narrative that comes when we look at the facts and findings. Uh, I also want to give uh, a brief on chronology. So when we look at the Rig Vedic evidence, in the Rig Veda, it already speaks of Manu, Mandhatri, Yayati, Nahush as ancestral figures. That means that the, uh, the current period of the Rig Veda happens long after those names. Uh, the contemporary names in it are the likes of Devadas, Sudas, uh, Sahadev, Somak, and the late names, names that are come in by the Mandal 10 of the Rig Veda are names such as Shantanu and Pratip, who we know are ancestors to the Kurus and the Pandavas of the Mahabharata. Therefore, it remembers the beginning of the seventh Manvanta and it, is, it represents the, the later stages of the Rig Veda, represents the closing period of the pre-Mahabharata era. And right after that, in fact, one of the composers in the Rig Veda is uh, Parashar, and we know that the son of Parashar was Ved Vyas. So when we want to form a chronological framework, and I don't think we can ever have conclusive, determined dates for any of these things. I don't think that should be our target as well. We should only be trying to find best fit chronological frameworks. And if we try to do that, there is enough hint in the Rig Veda to be able to do that. So, yeah, that's it from me. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, thank you, Amritansu, for actually taking on this Dasarajya or the Battle of the Ten Kings and putting a new narrative that is the out of India theory. Uh, just uh, one question to make Ji, Manubhaji, and Amritansu can also point his views on that. Uh, all this research that has been done are actually not trickled down to the level of uh, school level or college level for obvious reasons now. So as a, uh, and this question pertains to the research that you people are doing. So how does one, when one uh, does, uh, when one uh, actually goes for the research, how does one, uh, and especially in the scope of the chronology, how does one separates the chronology from the, because the texts are information of a lot of things. They are like, uh, it's not a 
historical text as history we know now so how does one do that how does one separate the historical facts and figures from the other let's say embellishments or other things that are present or maybe if you would like to take on this question i don't think there's there is likely to be one answer to this but let me share so i think your question had multiple layers first of all the question on how to take it to school books etc the only person who has done anything close to that is michel with his 11th and 12th class supplement for indian knowledge systems nobody else i think over here uh, at least that i know of has attempted doing anything like that and that was that had a survey as well so we perhaps have a model there in terms of how to take this and michel might be better placed to answer that with regard to separation of uh, with to your second question on how do we separate should we separate as another question that we should ask i think we should perhaps think of allow people to explore the text the way, way they want to and like we said earlier right we certainly agree with the likes of uh, vishwad luri and joyati bakchi when they say that an obsession with chronology comes from a certain protestant you know way of looking at things and that is certainly what we shouldn't be doing in our view at least and correct me if i'm wrong manokna if you say but i think chronology should not become an obsession but like we said if we lose a handle on chronology in the times that we live which is not ideal which is not the kind of model that michel was talking about where he cited from yasker's nirukta discussions between scholars respectful discussions disagreements we see uh, clear evidence of of ideas being decontextualized appropriated and you know reattributed like i mentioned two examples of karma and dhyana for instance in fact the whole aryan issue if we stop looking at it for a moment from migrations and invasions paradigm but if we look at it from the point of view what manogra and i look at it primarily as as in where does what brings us into this conversation is for us to understand the spatial and temporal origins of the earliest form of sanskritam and veda that to us culturally is important and we are open to all ideas it could well be that there there were migrations and that brought it in but we want good quality verifiable evidence to establish or the out of india theory and we are careful not to situate ourselves in either of these camps we are uh, in the third space which uh, which was identified by angela mark antonio and ja in their 2013 book which is not to say that our evidence would not be useful for people who are arguing the oit camp but we don't think we can see enough information to and like michel points out in a fantastic paper and much less read of his papers that thing that in page 4 if i remember he talks uh, about equation simplistic equations like pie equal to r1a1 these might be really very difficult to actually prove so we can't for a moment question those when it comes to aryan migration but while arguing for an oit switch and then use the same argument so these are certain pitfalls that one should be i think careful about so to answer your question how to separate i think my answer would be should be separate i think we should have people who look at rigveda from the point of view of historicity if they want to we should have people who look at looking at it from other angles as well similarly mahabharata if somebody wants to look at it purely from ethics values etc that should happen but if there are people who want to look at it from a chronology point of view because of 
particularly because there are some problematic uh, narratives which are coming away, that should happen as well. Manogna, do you want to add something to it? Um, I think I think you spoke very well about this uh, historical causation process. I think even our figure, one of the figures that we have in the earlier parts of our slides is basically that. And uh, I agree, I agree in, in the sense that I think each person will perhaps approach this differently. We can only speak for the characteristics of our approach to chronology. And that has been one which has been highly quantitative. It has been data-driven and it has been one where we are uh, a kind of, you know, uh, we pay attention to how clean our data is also. I mean, if you look at the Saraswati paper or the term Saraswati itself, the way we've seen for uh, the river and the way we've uh, seen for the references to the Blodis. So I think in, we can only speak about our signatures and that is that we are looking at some quantitative multidisciplinary approaches to chronology. But, and as uh, you know, made very rightly said, there are other approaches which have their place, very much have their place. And um, I think that's all we can speak of from our work. Yeah, I'll just quickly add one small thing to what Manukna said. What we do, what we have experienced though, and if anybody else has experienced something similar, please let us know. Uh, Manukna briefly touched upon it, right? Which is at an individual level, we engaged academically with ICHR and a few organizations using citizen mechanisms, right? Using RTI and so this is any Indian citizen is eligible to do this. And we didn't even for a moment actually present our evidence uh, in which we cite Michelle liberally and he's he was a member of ICHR as well. All we did with an open mind was to request them since ICHR has somewhere in its mission statement line that says that we support scientific history writing or something like that. So all we did was took out seven statements from the website and we said we are coming here with an open mind. Please show us the evidence. We presented nothing from our side though we had it prepared. Please show us the evidence, scientific evidence for somebody coming into Bharata with, you know, Sanskritam, earliest form of Sanskritam or Veda. So these are things. And like Manogna said, it was not a short thing. It took about six months. Different ministries got involved. But eventually, there was a change on the website, right? There was that. So if you go to the website today, National Portal of India, you will not see invasion of the Aryans that was removed after our RTI and uh, this thing. So at an individual capacity, one can do, I think, at least this much. At the capacity of being as a member of ICHR or like Professor Joy Sain is right now, he's leading Indian knowledge systems. I think there is greater possibility for them to actually influence uh, in an open, transparent, verifiable, non-political, scientific, without being scientist, you know, influence what is coming into the books. I think that's all I would like to add over here. Uh, Amritang, so if you want to put your views on this question of uh, research and how to approach text uh, to find out the chronology or the associate things. Very well covered uh, prior to me. Uh, I, I would just refocus that, you know, in our curriculum, we, we have already taught our students narratives and very hard narratives such that new facts and findings or questioning those narratives, you know, people don't even think about it. So, uh, in fact, maybe if we focus on encouraging people to study themselves, research themselves, to look at the base primary data, 
and uh, realize that you know the narratives are anyway open ended right now uh, even the origin of uh, pie there are opposing theories whether it came from the steppe whether it came from anatolia so uh, there are no hard conclusions uh, for pie itself now there is a theory for nostratic a language family above that so uh, uh, the, the scene is ever changing and uh, we should just focus people uh, encourage people to look at the primary data uh, not the hard narratives yeah thank you Uh, yeah, uh, Professor Danilo wants to say something. It's uh, most welcome. If it's if I may just uh, use three minutes of the time to make a few quick remarks. Um, yes, sir. I will have to to leave you. I have certain academic obligations um, at IIT Gandhinagar. So first of all, uh, quickly, Meg. And uh, first of all, Meg and uh, Manuel Nia, congratulations. These are very and uh, Amritanchu. Uh, very well researched, very careful, meticulous research, which I've always appreciated very much coming from from you, um, uh, and and very important references all through. But first of all, about this scientific writing of history, of course, that is a myth created by our leftist uh, beloved historians, and um, uh, especially um, um, Irfan Habib, who keeps saying, and he put this in the Constitution of ICHR. You know that we are going to do a scientific history. It's a total contradiction in terms. There cannot be scientific history. It's a completely different kind of of discipline. Of course, we can use some scientific evidence here and there, even that very very carefully. But first of all, there is no such thing as scientific history, and all honest historians today will accept that history is by definition subjective. And you know the way historians look at history today. Is completely different from 50 years ago. It will be different 50 years later. So there is no such thing. Uh, that's one. Then, then a few things about chronology. I completely appreciate your your concept that we should not be obsessed with chronology. I've been saying this with more than that for more than 20 years, and especially referring to all the amateurs that punch uh, some astronomical configuration into their software and come up with impossible dates. Uh, so, so this is this is of course the negative side of the obsession. But yes, there is some room for genuine concern with at least time scales. I want to point out to two, three things. First of all, uh, we should separate completely the question of the Vedic chronology, like the Samhitas and maybe some of the later Vedic texts, and that of Mahabharata, Ramayana, which are a very, very different cup of tea. So, for the Vedas, let us also keep in mind that the word ayas. Which is now pretty universally accepted as being copper, bronze, is frequently used, and this is this is not like ashwa. Uh, there is apparently, though it is a symbol also for something very hard, um, very strong, but it's very very frequently used. And if so, if so, Rigveda cannot possibly be older. Those hymns, at least, cannot be possibly older than 4,000, 4,500 BC, because that's. Absolutely firm evidence from archaeology. Uh, uh, copper, bronze metallurgy uh, begins a bit 4,500, but it's only after 4,000 BCE that uh, it is spreading over the the Western. So this is one the type of of uh, and also at the other end the, the the Sarasvati evidence. So this is a kind of evidence that can give us at least broad windows within which we can try to refine further. Uh, Mahabharata Ramayana. I will not say too much. There are lots of intriguing connections, and uh, Amritanchu, your 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 point about the the battle of the ten kings, they are very important. But I think we have to deal with a very different kind of 
of, of problem because don't forget that they also speak of a lot of kingdoms, Gonzitic kingdoms, kingdoms in the Northwest. And unfortunately, archaeology here again, and if we're going to accept archaeology in one field, we should also accept it in other fields. And it is that none of these Gangetic kingdoms ever existed before 800 BC. So we have a problem there because all the preceding cultures, the, the Neolithic cultures in the Gangetic plains, uh, the Mesolithic cultures before that, they've all been studied. There are lots of dates, not enough dates, but still lots of dates. And we do have a big problem. It seems to me my, my ultimate conclusion, I'm just throwing this as, as food for thought. I'm absolutely not dogmatic. I have no answer to this problem myself, is that we should regard rather Ramayana and Mahabharata not as texts, but as long traditions. That there could have been a beginning somewhere, yes, of, of this cycle of legends, perhaps in, in late Vedic times. And that these would have been amplified and repeated and amplified and relocated, why not? And, and finally put in, in, in you know, the text that we know, uh, attributed to, to Valmiki, attributed to Vyasa. And, and that uh, therefore these texts themselves need not be dated to the origin of the, of the tradition. That we, because they are written after in a, in a kind of classical uh, Sanskrit, and, and it's going to be extremely difficult to push that Sanskrit back to, to um, uh, the kind of dates that, you know, 2500 BC or something like that. So I think we have to very, very distinguish, clean up the methodology, first of all, of what exactly we are dealing with. As far as uh, proto indo homeland is concerned, PIE is concerned, uh, <clears throat> I have for a long time disagreed, even with the need of a PIE or a closely localized PIE. Look, Mehergar, 6000 BC, shows evidence of Lapis Azuli, which comes from uh, beyond the Hindu Kush. Hmm? What will be later on, Shortrugai, a Harappan site, settled there just to exploit the Lapis Azuli sources. So long before the Indus civilization, Mehergar is already crossing the Hindu Kush. They also go the other way, all the way to the sea. You find shell, shell artifacts shell necklaces in Mehergar in Baruchistan. So there are already long networks of trade established right from 6000 BC, which is the deep Neolithic era. And therefore, it's obvious to me that we have migrations all the way, all the way, in and out, all the time, all the time. So we're not factoring this in when we try to, so how does this, can we not have an extended PIE, you know, which, which could be built upon uh, long-term exchanges for millennia uh, between populations. I am not a competent linguist. I know the problems are very thorny, difficult, and and uh, but I'm just throwing this uh, as as food for thought. And uh, I think uh, I will I will stop here. I've exceeded my my time, but this was just and and with all my appreciation for uh, your work, which I think is also part of the way to go forward and and get clarity about the issues we are dealing with. Excuse me for this uh, long in intervention. Well, thank you actually, Professor, for your kind and enlightening words. And now uh, we would like to extend this session for 10 to 15 minutes. And now I would request Professor Joy Shen to, as the chair of this panel discussion, to uh, share his thoughts and give the concluding remarks.
Professor Joyson, please. Thank you, Namaskar. I think I just thought time is over and we have really extended the chronological order temporarily. And uh, uh, let me not invade as an Aryan coming either for the, from the Rhineland or from the Stepes or from uh, the Bering Strait or from Scotland, you know, you know, the Ires, the Ireland. So, but I think this was a lovely session. Yeah, I'm essentially an architect and a regional planner with a minor in development anthropology. You know, that got me into Indology over a long time. In 1987, when I was at Iowa State, uh, I was baptized by a Christian professor, Bill Boone, William C. Boone, who was uh, a co-mate of Spencer Tracy, Trevor Howard, and Frank Sinatra. And one day in the afternoon, I was having a chat with him. And he presented me with a book named The Tower of Physics. This was 1987. You know, it's pretty long back in the chronological order. And then my interest in the, the constructs, the connection between uh, you know, the advances in science, which is an area not included uh, normally with, in all these interpretations, you know, the latest in quantum science, the latest in quantum physics, the latest in quantum chemistry, the latest in astrophysics, uh, which are not included in the, you know, the methodological construct to evaluate the secret of the Vedas, you know, to evaluate the deep ecological foundations of the Vedas, you know, the nonlinear constructs of time, the continuous flow of space, time, and causation, and the satyam, ritam, brihat, the ideas of cosmic symmetry, that of evolution and evolution, which recurs in Sri Aurobindo's uh, writings at least a thousand times. You know, we have not paid much attention to that sambhuti and asambhuti of the Isha Upanishads. And, uh, and the ideas of the, you know, the septuple, the, the, septa, the septuplet matrix, you know, the movements in the cycles of time, the Navagya and the Dashagwa Rishis, you know, reaching the ninth and the tenth in the solar cycles of the Rig Veda. So I thought uh, I'll... Uh, uh, I'll approach the whole thing. This was my passion in the late 80s and the 90s and when I was not a f in, the in the faculty of academics. And this is exactly what has gone into the calendar, you know, uh, where uh, people have been, uh, you know, it has created a lot of appreciation and, and a lot of discomfort in the academic and uh, circle. Why it has created? Because suddenly uh, the entire of Vedic literature as a text or as a period in history has been compared to the latest of Western science, which is, which is imbibing different constructs, which was not there prior to the First World War or the Second World War. You know, essentially, Western science was reductionist. You know, it was Newtonian. It was Cartesian. It was Darwinian. It was following a linear construct of time, following the Usher Lightfoot chronology, you know, you know starting from 4000 BC. You know, it's Darwinian, it's Cartesian, it's reductionism. And then you have great people like uh, Warner Heisenberg in 1929, who comes all the way to Kolkata to meet uh, uh, Gurudev Rabindranath Thakur to discuss the parallels between quantum cycles of non-locality and time, and that he has read in the poetries of Tagore. And that was followed by Einstein inviting Tagore to his Berlin house in 1930, talking about the involvement of consciousness, human consciousness in understanding the universe. So whether there's a reality of the universe independent of the human consciousness or 
it is a reality which is based on the anthropic principle, you know, which is it's an anthropocentric universe. If you look at the Rishi's descriptions of the cosmos, of the Vedas and the Vedantas, it is an anthropocentric universe. You know, it is Brahmavid, Brahmaiva Bhavati. You know, by meditating on the Brahma, the Rishis have become Brahma Sharupa. So this is Gnosis, Gnostic, the Gnostic. It's a word which has been used by Sri Aurobindo time and again, but we have not paid much importance to this word. You know, all the discussions that we are broadly doing are at the intellectual objective level, you know. But we have to understand, if you have to understand the secret of the Vedas and uncode them, we have to go to that Gnostic level of rapture, where the Samadhi, where the subject and the object and the process of participation becomes one. And it is from that point, it is from that point all the realization of the the parable of the recovery of the sun, or the parable of the recovery of uh, the cows, you know, the go, the light, avang manasa gocharam. So the go is light in the word avang manasa gocharam. Something which is not explained by, you know, vakya, manas, and go, which is light. You know, it's beyond mind, it's beyond words, it's beyond light. So this is uh, a deep foundation of the Vedas. So I, I thought, we thought, that there is a missing domain uh, in this uh, rebuttal to the Aryan invasion myth, which is perhaps embedded in the walks of Sri Aurobindo, which is not possible for a trained historian to you know, uh, understand whether he is from the leftist camp or from the secular socialist camp or from the liberal socialist camp or whether it is from the Western paradigm of, uh, you know, Driven by uh, and from Griffith to uh, Max Muller to William C. Jones, I mean we can't blame them because they don't have the eye, they don't have the tools, they don't have the they don't have the techniques to understand this deep ecological system. You know, so this calendar, which I don't want to mention again and again in today's concluding discussion, was just a tip of the iceberg. You know, it it uh, it was just a tip, not even a tip. It was like a tip of the tip of the iceberg. You know. And it created a, it has created a bit of commotion, you know, within India and beyond India, to an extent that one of my friend, who was the secretary of Bill Gates, you know, my classmate, batchmate, IIT Kharagpur, we are all together for the last, you know, 30 years, school, IIT Kharagpur, then I went to Iowa, he went to MIT for his PhD in artificial intelligence, and so he told me, Joy, all the people who are appreciating your, cal uh, your calendar, they have not read your calendar, but they are appreciating. All the people who are criticizing, they have also not read your calendar. You know, they are all predetermined and they want to write a rebuttal against your calendar. So, Joy, what you can do is you can make a declaration that you're going to produce a calendar next year. And you're going to do that for all the years you're going to survive if they make you survive. You know, if you're still surviving under the rays of the sun. So, this is about Aryan invasion. So, this is a problem where we, have, where we ha are. We have different camps. I'll just give you two or three small examples because we are already running out of time. You know, three examples. I, I'll just give you three small foods for thought, you know, the way Michelle was saying. One, just think about a huge university, Harvard University. You know, think about a particular year, say 2022 or 21. Think about 10,000 students coming from Japan, from Africa, from Alaska, from India, from Australia, from Tierra del Fugo from Russia, and they've all come to Harvard and they're passing out, or maybe they've come in 2017, 
they've got their bachelors and mostly masters and phds and some of them have got great jobs and become great entrepreneurs and some have uh, even picked up a nobel prize you know because it's harvard university so you just raise two simple questions as to all these people of the batch of 2017 or 2021 you know who have reached this level of excellence in entrepreneurship in academia or getting a nobel prize what is responsible is it the ecosystem of harvard one or is it from where they have come from they have, whether they have come from india or they have come from japan or they come from africa even a child will say obviously it is the harvard ecosystem which has made them what they are today they are harvardians so likewise thousands of races have gone out of india and thousands of races have come inside india the word Arya or Arjo has nothing to do with race. It is to do with the quality of mind, you know, in the words of Abraham Maslow, in the, in the words of Andrew Cohen, in the noble mind of adaptation, assimilation, and acceptance, and acceptance. This is something which has to be, which has to be understood. So it is in the Indian ecosystems, under the Himalayas, around the Vindhyas, in the land of seven or 15 rivers for thousands of years, this deep ecological culture of the Vedas, which is poetic, then the age of the Vedantas, which is more rational, then the post-Vedanta age, which is Puranic, then coming to the times of Buddha and then Mahaveda and to the more recent times of Shankara and others. You know, that's the whole lineage. You know, that is that is the whole lineage. So the answer is very, very simple. So it is the Indian ecosystem which needs to be understood. There is something about the geographical landscape. You know, that's the first page of the calendar, the sacred landscape, India's sacred space. That's the month of January, you know. And, uh, you know, there's nothing much there because it's a calendar. You know, it's not, not a research paper with 100 references. There's only a small visual space available on the calendar. So it just hints at the sacred space where this journey had happened and produced Agastya Mitra Varuni or a Vashishta Mitra Varuni. And it is still producing someone like Swami Vivekananda or a Ramana Maharshi or a Sri Aurobindo or a Paramhamsa Yogananda right in our own times. So it is in the Indian sub subcontinent, the practice of meditation, the system of yoga, the system of Gnosis is continuous and sustainable. If you look at Egypt, if you look at Greece, it is a past. If you look at India, the idea of the Vedas is continuous through Vivekanandas and Yogananda's and Aurobindo's and others. This is a very, very, very important point to understand, where which cannot be under, understood just by geography, anthropology, ethnology, and uh, spatial tools only. We are having all respect to them. So this is a spiritual foundation, a unique country. You know, even Arnold Toynbee says that if India is gone, in the words of Swami Vivekananda, I mean, uh, the world will lose all its spirituality because this is the only country where spirituality has been sustained as a way of life, as a system of yoga, as in a system of gnosis. This is point number one. Think about it. The second point is that if you look at the Indus Valley sills, you know, you know, the, the scripts and everything, 
they have a tremendous uh, similarity with the Asia Pacific scripts like Kanzi China, Kanzi Japan, things like that. And if you look at the Indus Valley Prisk, it looks like a Tatar, a Sino Mongoloid person. So that is Indus Valley. You know, that is Indus Valley. And if you look at the National Geographic Walk, you'll find that as a body of Tatar Mongoloid race, uh, starting from north of India, they had migrated into North America about 20,000 or 30,000 years prior to you know, the birth of Christ. You know, these, are, these are deep archaeological, ethnological, anthropological, genetic research done by Smithsonian scholars. And in that, in that flow of language, if you find Sanskrit somewhere, like a Machapichu of Annapurna range, which means the fish tail, also means the Machapichu of Inca in South America, which also means the fish tail. I mean, how come the two Sanskrit words separated by two continents with a huge ocean in between, but having the same meaning? You know, so these are serious questions. I mean, this part of the research has not been touched studying the deep Aryan culture. And I'm just giving you a tip of the iceberg. And the last point is that the last point is that chronology is fine, but what is more important in this research is content. It is content plus chronology. It is not chronology, it is the movement of content over time. The movement of content. How the content of the early Vedic suttas, the Saptarishis, gets slightly changed in the middle order Vedic suttas, like Atreya, who is not Atri of the Saptarishis, but Atreya, you know, uh, you know, which is there in the seventh mandala. And there's an archaeoastronomical software, Microsoft Planetarium and TIFR, who has uh, predicted a date of 8255 BC for seeing the Hamal star Ashwin at dawn. So that's based on the precision of the equinox. So if you want to see that scene again, you have to wait for 26,000 years. It's pure science on astrophysics. You know, that's pure science. And then compared to that, the much later Vedic Sutras, when it's becoming textual rather than oracular. So these are serious things which needs to be studied and roped in into the whole bodies of research other than texts and archaeology and ethnology. You know. So what the need of the hour is to imbibe and uh, include a huge body of science to unleash the secret in the Vedas and apply for different archaeological interpretations, of which the reinterpretation of the Indus Valley just, is just one of many, and there are others which leads us to a huge new realization, inclusive of the research already being done by scholars like Meg, Manogna, and others like Amritangshu. And then we get a powered evidence, a body, to prove that the word Arjo or Aryan has nothing to do with race or scientific racism as it was propounded by Charles Darwin and his half-cousin, Francis Galton and his disciple Carl Pearson, you know, famous for Pearson's correlation in statistics. And uh, I think you all know about two decades back in Oxford University and in Cambridge, uh, in Imperial College, some of the halls named after Galton and others were changed because they were racial, it was racial, because they promoted uh, a thing in the name of scientific racism. And Henrik Himmler from 1935 to 1938 used it for a super Aryan race theory to support the Germans' war for anti-Semitism. And it's even there in the US today, 
you know, just last year, the Capitol complex was rioted by a group of people who had bought T-shirts having the neo-Nazi Auschwitz camp from Poland, you know, you know, A-U-S-C-H-W-I-T-H in Auschwitz camp, you know. So the, the, the power of defining a noble race by virtue of skin color and genetics is a serious problem to human civilization for which we have to turn around and go back to Maslow and Aurobindo and Ken Wilber and Vivekananda and reevaluate the word Arya, not as per racial migration packets of information, but by a more deeper qualitative connotation of who Arya is. I'll just end there. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Professor Joyson, for your wonderful words. And I don't think we could end this seminar with better message than what you have mentioned about the depth of our culture and the non-linearity and the content behind the chronology. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'll just tell you one more thing. Since we are, you know, and because I I met Manogna and Meg uh, in in that IHR conference, you know, we have we became friends. So I'm just sharing this with some of my friends, meeting Amritamshu for the first time. You know, if you look at the philological, etymological, and the linguistic depth of the word Arya and Ravida, and Professor Mishra is an authority in that. The word Arya comes from two deep words. One is re, you know, from the word rhythm, and the word other word is ar, 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 which is a spoke of a will. Now, re or ar essentially has the ray, the ray flicks, which is which is the bija of Agni, fire, fire. And Ravida is essentially based on the word Brava, which means Soma. Soma, which means the immortality, the, the elixir coming down from the heavens. So in other words, the word Arya and Ravida are not at conflict. They are at perfect complementarity of the foundations of the Vedas, founded father, and the doctrines of Agni and Soma. Want a proof? The proof is, if you look at the North Indian temple tradition, it is Agni Shikaram. So that's why the topmost point of the North Indian temple is called Shikhar, based on the word Shikha, which is the Arya. And if you look at the South Indian temple, the highest point is Gopuram, which is Soma, which is the, the coming down of the nectar. And as you enter the temple, the height decreases as opposed to the North Indian traditions. So in other words, the North Indian and the South Indian traditions portray an undivided and integral picture of the two sides of the Vedic tradition, which is, a, which is the science of thermodynamics, the Carnot cycle of heat and cold. What is heat? Absence of cold. What is cold? Absence of heat. So, so this nonlinear cyclic dynamism is just a new thing in Western science. If the Aryans had come from Europe, that's there in the calendar. I mean, they came to India and realized it. And because in Europe, there, there was no idea about non-Newtonian, non-Cartesian, non-linear. It just has entered with Western science in the last 50, 60 years with Nobel laureate Ilaya Prejuja in 1977 and the 2017 uh, Nobel Prize on Physiology of Circadian Rhythms, you know, Jeffrey Fisher and others which is based on the system of yoga. So suppose they are by race, if they have come from Rhineland or from Scotland or from Scandinavia, 
how does it matter? It is in that Harvard University example. It is in the Indian ecosystem, under the Himalayas, on the both sides of the Vindhyas, and over the Dravidian tip, which is the Kanyakumarika, where Swamiji had gone and meditated. The Kumari Sangam, you know, Kumarika Sangam, the Tamil Sangam of Skanda Swami and uh, Agastha, you know, which is uh, one of the most ancient traditions of Veda, you know, uh, of, of today. The secret of the Vedas are actually found. And, and one of that center in the ancient time was in Karaikulam. Incidentally, that is Pondicherry today. That is, that is exactly where Swamiji had walked in. And within a, within a decade, Sri Aurobindo had walked into that same place and stayed in that same house where Swamiji had say, stayed a few years back, a few years back. So these are very, very important points to ponder and expand and embrace. So these are there in my uh, book called The Sustainable uh, Urban Planning, published by Terry, uh, which has given me a lot of royalty through which I, if I can even buy a Audi car. You know, it's given me so much of royalty. And uh, yeah, so, uh, and it has become a textbook of about 100 colleges and institutions all over India. And in that book, there's a whole annexure on the Arya and the Dravida explanation with drawings, shape grammars, semantics and semiotics of iconography, which is a very important domain which needs to be amalgamated with the research, the wonderful research which Meg, Manogna and Amrita Amshu is doing. Then the whole body of research becomes complete. Uh, this is a small addition. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Professor Joyson, again for your enlightening words. And now I would like to thank Megji, Madognaji, and Amtangsuji for presenting their wonderful research and enlightening us and those who are joining the webinar and also those who are viewing it in YouTube. I'd also like to thank Professor Misal Diarino for the keynote address and for setting the secret of the Vedas context in this webinar. And finally, I would like to thank Professor Sampananda Misraji for this wonderful initiative. And we are already in the fifth chapter of this and each month we'll be having, we'll be taking up a new topic and trying to contextualize and contemporize Sri Aurobindo. And yes, with this, let's wrap up this session and we shall meet in the next month. Yeah. Can you just yes, send me the YouTube link where it's all sure, coming sir. up? Yeah, that would be wonderful. I'll do, I'll you, can do just, that. you can just WhatsApp me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. Thank, yeah, you. Sir, thank you for having us over. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah.